take a knee, take a seat, grab a brew, and listen in. This is the Reorg Podcast. And welcome back to another episode of the Real Podcast. Sorry, there's been a little delay, but as we all know, COVID has gotten away. I'm very lucky with these episodes and getting to speak to some amazing people and you know them them sharing their experiences and their stories with me. So this week's this episode's guest is Stu Nicholson or Major Nicholson. He served with the Royal Regiment of Fusiliers and the Poachers, the Second Battalion, of the Royal Anglin Regiment, where he was the OC whilst on tour in in Iraq. Uh, we go in about we go and talk about his tours of Bosnia as well as his two tours of Iraq, where in you know subsequently eleven years after he joined the army is when he first experienced his com- first combat. And we also go into some officer specific details that I didn't even know. Um, it was just good to get an insight into that. So here it is. And here we are. Um, I'm here with Stu. If you want to just give a little introduction about yourself. Uh, where you're from, why you joined the army, when you joined the army, etc. Yeah, um, hi mate, Stu Nicholson. I um, I joined the army when well, I went to Sandhurst in 1994, so commissioned in 1995. I come from um, Newcastle, basically. I was born um, in Northumberland, but grew up mainly in sort of Gateshead. Um, joining the army was a, I suppose I'd always wanted to do it. I think part of it was my well, like everyone's was. My granddad was in the Fusiliers, Northumberland right. Fusiliers. My great-granddad was in the Northumberland Fusiliers. Mm-hmm. But there were world wars on, so there wasn't much choice, really. Yeah. And I think my dad had always wanted to join the forces. But he um, he left school at 16, kind of had to get a job, because that's how money worked yeah. then. And so he he took the, he ended up working in the bank, but mm-hmm. he was pretty frustrated by it. And he was really interested in military history and stuff. And I suppose that had a sort of effect on me, mm-hmm. you know? And so... I, I kind of always, it was always there. I always wanted to join the army, really. And then um, I did A-levels. And, and, and I suppose when I was younger, I hadn't really considered going in commissioned or not or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And then um, I did A-levels. And then next thing followed next thing. And I did university. And before I went to uni, it, I, uh, I did my officer selection. Um, and the army sponsored me through uni. So right. that, that was kind yeah, of nice. a commitment made. Yeah. It wasn't a lot of money, but it, it helped. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so always wanted to be in the army, um, and then just kind of fell into it like that. And the Fusiliers, as you know, I ended up joining the Fusiliers. Um, you had to be an infantry soldier for joining the army. You know, if you're going to be a bear, you've got to be a grizzly. Yeah. And the Fusiliers was my local regiment, and I had, you know, family connections to it and things. So it all just kind of flowed. It, yeah. Looking back now, it almost felt like there was never a time where there was a conscious decision. Yeah. It all just kind of happened. But in Sandwich, you get your. Do you have choices? Um, yeah, right. So the way it works is, is when you go to Sandhurst, you have a regiment which is said in principle that they would take you, mm-hmm. but there's no commitment for them to take you. And it's three terms, so it's a year essentially at Sandhurst, three terms. And towards the end of the second term, you start doing what they call regimental acceptance. And so you, you fill in a sheet of what you would like to join. Mm-hmm. And then you go and they have like an open day where everyone comes in, you walk around and chat to people. And then you have... After that, there's interviews with the different regiments, and they decide if they want you, if they fit, and they see your reports and everything. Yeah. So they know what you like. Um, 
And there's also regimental reps at Sandhurst. So there was a Fusiliers platoon commander at Sandhurst who'd seen me and, and they kind of watch and feed back to RHQ and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of regimental acceptance, you get offered um, by the regiments that might take you, you get an offer to you know, say, yeah, we'll have you or not. And I was lucky that the Fusiliers was my first choice and I, and I got an offer from the Fusiliers. But you know, some people don't get what they want to do and end up yeah. <laughs> three or four cat badges away from what they wanted to be. Yeah. So I had um, Tony Harris on before you know we yeah, talked about yeah, as well when yeah. the infantry in, in in a regular soldier's infantry is like the lowest of the low but that's quite different in it, it, yeah it is in, um, as an officer well I wouldn't say lowest of the low it's diff- different yeah. different demand but it's Santos yeah. definitely the teeth arms are the hardest to get into so your infantry and, and armoured corps mm-hmm. and then things like um, army air corps just because you need hand-eye coordination and shit yeah. but infantry and um, armoured corps are the hardest to get into I think it's because when it comes to leadershipy stuff, and there's going to be people who aren't infantry or armoured corps spitting when they hear this, but at the actual coal face of it, it's the hardest leadership yeah. ask. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because you've got cold, wet, frightened people doing awful things that they don't yeah. want to do. And so I think the view is, is that you need people who they're confident can trot that out when it's required. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's harder to get into the infantry and armoured corps. Um, and I was just, I had a fairly good run at Sandhurst and, and got offered what I wanted to go into. Right. Did you enjoy Sand? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a weird experience. Yeah. And um, you know, I, uh, you know, both my parents left school at sixteen. My grandparents, you know, lived and died in council houses and stuff. And I was the first person in our family to go to university or anything like that. Yeah. And when I was at Sandhurst, the majority of people were privately educated. And considering it's what, 6% of the population are privately educated, mm-hmm. it would be over 50% really? when I was there. And considering 2% of the population bored, I would say maybe about 30, 40% had. And so for me, the culture shock was, you know, I'd lived away from home at university, but you didn't get up early at university, you mm-hmm. didn't shave and yeah. stuff. And I think for a lot of people, it was just another term at boarding school. Yeah, You know, they were kind of comfortable with it. For yeah. me, it was a bit of a you have like like military schools as well I guess that people go to well I mean a lot of the the, the big private schools and stuff have um, combined cadet force mm-hmm. which is kind of like officer version of the, the cadets and when I was at uni I did um, officer training corps which yeah. is kind of like TA for yeah. TA for students but that was a chimp about I mean it was great fun I mean I played rugby for the under 23s in the army and we had quite a lot of OTC lads yeah but their time was just <laughs> Play rugby, that was their time. Oh, it's, 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 like, it's a chimp about. So yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd done stuff like that, you know, I could strip a rifle. Mm-hmm. But um, it was kind of a shock to the system living like that. But it was enjoyable, it was, because you were, you were pushed. It was, it, I found it quite demanding. Yeah. You know, and I think if you wanted to do well, it was hard work. Yeah. And it's a year long. So when you start and you look ahead and you think, Jesus, it's going to take me forever, this. Yeah. And at the end of every term, you have the sovereigns parade where the senior platoon pass up, a senior um, term pass off, and you watch them passing off the square, and you just think, "Am I ever going to get there?" Because yeah. on the way there, there's people get injured and can't do it, and there's people mm-hmm. get thrown out, there's people get back termed and stuff. And I think with my platoon, it was less than fifty percent of the original platoon got to passing out, either through injury and being back squatted because of injury, or mm-hmm. or leaving or getting thrown out or whatever. So it, it, there was times where it looked like a long, a long haul, mm-hmm. and it was. Um, you know they were they were on you. I would say that the exercises at Sandhurst, in all honesty, were some of the hardest exercises I ever did. Because yeah. a, we didn't know what the fuck we were doing. 
but also they were, the, the, the exercises were, the, were a, um, a vehicle to see what your leadership was like yeah. and what you needed was cold tired people so you just did these exercises where you, and you had to do everything perfectly mm-hmm. there was no corner cutting allowed you know you couldn't do this because we're all shagged out yeah. we'll just dial this down a bit no yeah. you're all still going to do it all right and if it isn't done right you get marked down if it's your command appointment yeah. and some of the exercises you just like three days without kipping and 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 then two and a half days and that someone says you're the platoon commander for the next thing and you think Jesus Christ <laughs> and that, obviously when you're platoon commander in that appointment it's everything's got all eyes on you yeah yeah, that's a big deal and um, and, but what I liked about it was and for I talked about you know there was like it was you know boarding school blokes and things like that what was good about it was once you were in it you were kind of all in it together Mm -hmm. and and what you found was you gravitated towards the other blokes who would dig out for you when you're in a commander point Mm -hmm. and vice versa and so there was the good blokes and there was the jack people and the good blokes were from all sorts of different backgrounds yeah because when you had a commander point, if no one's going to work for you, you're going to have an absolute horror. Yeah. But if people worked for you, you got through it. So you mm-hmm. learned who were the, the good blokes. So that mm-hmm. was good. And there was, you know, there was a lot of, and life was kind of simple in that all that really mattered was that you, <laughs> your boots were pulled properly and that you'd made the parade on time and stuff like that. You know, mm-hmm. you didn't really worry about much else outside of it. Mm-hmm. So I, I enjoyed it. Um, it was hard work and it felt like a long time when you were in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still look back now and kind of think, yes, that was that was quite a lick. Mm. It was it was, oh, it was it's a pretty intense year. Yeah, I mean it's a year long. You know, you look at the normal infantry soldiers training at six months, at Harrogate it's twelve months. That's the same, but for a year of it as well. And you go through to I guess what is it? The first term must just be the basic yeah. basic soldier. In that that's yeah. They kind of condense at the first term. That's yeah. It's your basic weapon handling marching cleaning things and they're, and they're really trying to make you not be a civvy anymore mm-hmm. so you know you just get up at Christ o'clock in the morning and start polishing stuff and go to bed at a thousand o'clock at night and, yeah. and there's no weekends and you can't leave camp and yada yada mm-hmm. and that's it's kind of a shock to the system that yeah. but yeah once that's done they dial it down a bit and then you're a bit more comfortable you can mm-hmm. concentrate on the on the stuff you've got to learn not just on keeping your head above water yeah. which is definitely what the, the first five weeks of the first term are the are the real lick yeah. and then so you all stay to, kind of stay together don't you as yeah. officers for the 12 months or yeah. the, the year and then you go off to the platoon battle uh, yeah you go off and do battles. your so everyone no matter what they're going into does the, the commissioning course mm-hmm. at Sandhurst and then you go off and do your junior officer training so it depends what you're going to be your specialist trainers your phase mm-hmm. two so mm-hmm. um, so if you go in infantry you went to the platoon commander's battle course which at the time when I did it was run at Warminster. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually between Sandhurst and PCD, I did my first op tour. Right. Because you could do that in those days. Yeah. Now no one would allow you to go on an op tour when you hadn't done all the courses. But yeah, and, and between commander's course, it was great actually because you were wearing your own cap badge and stuff. You know, yeah. you were, and you were buzzing that you were now an infantry officer. You know, yeah. I was a fusiliers officer. I yeah. made up with myself. Mm-hmm. And because the, because as you were saying before, you know, that, the demand to get into the infantry, you, you had to be fairly good. Mm. There was no choss on the course, really. Mm-hmm. It was good blokes who really wanted to be there. And also, it was just a bit more grown up. Yeah. you know. And it was hard work, but it was good fun. And you yeah. wanted to do it because you wanted to be a professional infantry officer. Yeah. And so, so you said you went on tour between Sandhurst and yeah. uh, 
doing commanders battlegrounds. Where, yeah. where was that? Bosnia. Bosnia. So, so the way that worked was the uh, one RF were off to um, Bosnia when it was UN, mm-hmm. and what they wanted to do was get all of their junior officers essentially get them a medal yeah. straight off right. so whether you're going to end up in 1RF or 2RF you uh, we all went off to all went off to Bosnia right. um, not as between commanders just mm-hmm. as watch keepers and stuff right, okay. so you were just like a sort of spare bod in the company HQ yeah. um, but that was good because you were a float so you could just fasten yourself to stuff Yeah. you know and it was uh, yeah was it a good, a good experience as a oh yeah oh, uh, yeah and I mean it was a it was a good tour that tour um, I think one RF and good Nick you know battalions have a good time yeah, you yeah. Know. they were when you joined them you could see they were uh, good they were, they were good yeah. you know what I mean and they were happy and, and they were a good regiment and I'm, I'm quite again you know I spoke with um, John Mack who was in Kosovo but I'm you know I'm quite naive to Bosnia and what what Bosnia was what was the what was what was going on what was going on what, was, what were we there for was it so good? essentially um Yugoslavia yeah. was a was a kind of artificial country mm-hmm. um, which largely grew out of um, the end of the First World War and the treaties at the end of the First World War but it was made up of Bosnia, Croatia um, Serbia Montenegro I think a few other, a few yeah. other countries and then uh, after the Second World War it was, a, it was a communist country and it was Tito was the um, the dictator essentially and he sort of held the country together but with the end of the Cold War and the fall of the collapse of communism mm-hmm. and so the move towards sort of democracy there um, a lot of the countries decided they didn't want to be part of Yugoslavia anymore but mm-hmm. Serbia which was the, the largest of them wanted to keep it together right. so you have these countries that decided so Croatia um, and Bosnia decided they wanted to separate from Yugoslavia mm-hmm. and the Serbs didn't want them to mm-hmm. and Croatia so there was the, the war with Croatia which happened fairly early on Croatia Got, kind of got independent-ish. Bosnia, the drama was in Bosnia, it was smaller, but it had a much more mixed population. So there's quite a lot of Serbs living in Bosnia. Right. And essentially that's when it descended into the whole um, ethnic cleansing and stuff. It mm-hmm. just it got fairly unpleasant. This, right. you know, this was, a, this was a, an artificial country with people who didn't have a great deal in common, had yeah. been forced to live together. Yeah. And then the lid was taken off that kept them together. Yeah. And you had the, the Bosnian Muslims, the Bosniaks and the Croats living in Bosnia didn't want to be part of Yugoslavia anymore oh, yeah. the Serbs living there wanted them to stay that mm-hmm. way and it just got nasty and so the UN um, deployed there and the, the UN role was kind of um, trying to generate some sort of security but the rules of engagement were gash you couldn't really do much if they didn't mm-hmm. want you to do it mm-hmm. um, it was pretty much self-defence right. um, but also it was to, to um, get eyes on the ground as well so if you could report what was going on and stuff so mm-hmm. when, when we were there in 95 the deployment was a couple of years old maybe um, and things had calmed down a bit um, but what we were mainly doing was framework patrols out to sort of look on the ground what was going on and then while we were there a, uh, a well what we did a few things but a peace treaty was signed essentially and we changed to NATO NATO policed the peace treaty but the first half of it was um, I mean it was a it was weird because you know, we I flew out there just me and the guy Pete Stitt, I never knew him, him and me commissioned at the same time. Mm-hmm. And we uh, flew, you know, <laughs> just drove down to Bryce, got on a Herc, got off in Croatia, got on a Lynx, just the two of us. And I got dropped off in um, Gorni Vakuf, just stood in an HLS. <laughs> I was like, I was home 
12 hours before yeah. and I was on my tort but as you flew in you just passed buildings after buildings with no roofs on them and stuff mm. and got picked up there and driven to Bogoino I was going to X company and it was just a whole valley and there wasn't one house had a roof it had been cleansed that, mm. you know and, and the weird thing was with Bosnia it looked like Europe it looked like a ski resort yeah you know it, it looked like you were in Bavaria yeah. but and you just thought this is fucking this is Europe well, I mean, you look at you look at Croatia to nowadays. It's like oh, one, of the, one of the holiday destinations. Yeah, I know. I know. And it wasn't long ago they were in a oh, massive war. Terrific. And then and and so and what I did was I stagged on an awful lot in the ops room, but I got to see the patrol program. So I just say to people, "Can I can I tag along?" Yeah. You know. And so I, I didn't sleep very much, but I got out and about a lot. And um, and it was interesting from just going to meet locals in a tiny village in the middle of nowhere mm. to. Um, I mean, we had, it was weird because Bogoina, where we were, was on what they called the confrontation line, which was essentially was just behind the front line mm-hmm. between, at that stage, the Croats and Muslims were fighting together as on, on the same side right. against the Serbs. Mm-hmm. And the Serbs were north of us. Mm-hmm. And they did this massive offensive and pushed the Serbs miles and miles north, but they weren't letting us move forward. And then they were going to have a ceasefire on the front line to discuss exchanging casualties and prisoners and stuff. And, and, um, so one RF were going to go up, a company's going to go up and secure the meeting point, and I managed to get with that, and we just drove north into areas we'd never been to mm. for hours mm-hmm. and hours. And as you got closer where the fighting had recently been, there's lots of like dead stuff. First you passed um, farms, and all the cows were dead in the field, yeah. and all the chickens were dead in the yard, and there was a dead dog, and you thought, Christ. And then just driving through a town called McConaughey where the fighting had just stopped, we got stopped at a checkpoint, and next to us was a field it was quite a hot day. There was a pile of bodies, maybe 20, 30 bodies, and guys in NBC kit because of the smell, yeah. chucking them into a big hole in the ground with a, you know, with a digger there, JCB. And I don't know if they were casualties from the fighting or if they were people that the Serbs had killed on the yeah. way out, or if they were people that the Croats had killed on the way in. I don't know who they were, but it's just a huge pile of dead bodies, smelling quite a lot. And then we got through there, went up past a place called Bokhach and got to the actual confrontation line and they were going to meet in this, <laughs> it was a deserted cafe on the confrontation line. We got out there and you could smell a dead bloke again. Mm. And in the back garden of this cafe was a bloke who'd been raped and shot in the back of the head. And you're fucking hell. But, but the weird thing was, I think part, I was young. Mm. And you're less bothered by stuff when mm. you're younger. And also, it was an away game. If yeah. I saw that in the UK, be, yeah. I'd have been in shit order forever. Mm. But it just kind of was part of it. It'd been on the news for years, Bosnia, for a couple of years, so you, mm-hmm. you kind of knew yeah. what it was, you know what I mean? Um, so that, yeah. And then we changed to NATO and we moved around quite a bit then, occupied another, it was kind of cool, you know, we just occupied like an old, occupied an old factory. Mm-hmm. And the first we were in the factory living in there, it was winter, it was like feet of snow, in your bivvy bag and DOS bag, cooking compo, on a hexy stove, you know, it's like, it was yeah. like, yeah. It, and then very rapidly, we got heaters in, we got generators yeah, yeah, in, but... patched the place up, and it was had a bar within a month. <laughs> but it was, um, it was, it was brilliant to yeah. do straight from Santa straight into that, and yeah. it was just seeing stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, how was that? so just going on? That that wasn't a. You know, did you see combat at all in that? No, but no. you did. Seeing those bodies must have been. Like, like you just touched on it then it didn't really affect you but how did when you came back from that how did you do you know it's it's funny I, it didn't it didn't and it still doesn't particularly bother me mm-hmm. and now I think back to it and it almost doesn't seem real yeah 
you have to remind myself that did happen. We yeah. talked about it. Yeah. You know, it was it was there. But it, I don't I don't know why it was. Like I say, a I was just young and full of beans. Mm-hmm. And it was an away game. It didn't look real. And I think the funny thing was with Bosnia, you're saying, yeah, there's no contact or anything. And there was a couple of minor ones. And there's a huge mine risk. Mm-hmm. We had, Fuselians had a couple of casualties uh, because of mines, right. um, which weren't put out for us. Mm-hmm. It's just, just over there. Yeah, over the yeah. place. Right. But essentially what it was, it was a war that we were invited to go and watch. Mm-hmm. We weren't in it. Right. We were invited to go and watch mm-hmm. it. And so you just felt like you were watching it. You felt like a third part in it. Mm. You know what I mean? It wasn't our people. Mm-hmm. We hadn't done it to them. Yeah. You just kind of felt, I felt like I was just in a film yeah. almost, just watching yeah. it. It didn't, and weirdly, I almost, you know, those days out, you got back and you thought, wow, that's a, that's something different. And I joined the army to do different stuff different and I'm already getting stories, yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And, um, and it was a busy tour and busy's good. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was. It was. I really enjoyed it. It was good, and um, we came back slightly early to do um, PCD. And how, how did you? Did you find when you came back and did PCD that it was actually beneficial for you? The fact that you've already done. Do, do you know what? All we were doing in Bosnia was. All I was doing in Bosnia Staying was sat in the back of someone's. Yeah. Sa- I was staggered on the radio, <laughs> or sat in the back of someone's sacks and going yeah. somewhere, and then um, and also PCD was was right back to basic platoon attacks yeah. and stuff yeah. it was cool that I had a medal yeah you know and, and like when we had like mess dinner I had like me one little medal on my yeah. mess kit yeah. I thought I was a legend <laughs> and there's a few people who had Bosnia medals there's a few people who have done the same thing with Northern Ireland insanely right. with other regiments there's like the odd medal around yeah yeah but you, you, you kind of felt you know you're the daddy because mm. people didn't have medals then no no yeah and we were talking about before we start recording is that you know and you mentioned how we were kind of like the golden age of ops and stuff when I joined the army there was Northern Ireland and Nout. Yeah. And only really infantry went to Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Some of the people did, but mainly infantry. So you had infantry soldiers who had a Northern Ireland medal. And if they'd been in a while, they had an accumulated campaign service medal because mm-hmm. they'd just done endless tours of Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Other people had Nout. They'd been up Granby in 91, so the invasion of, um, the, the, well, the liberation of Kuwait. Yeah. And in Fusilis, there's a few people hanging around who'd done that from old 3RF days. But, mm-hmm. you know, when I was at Sandhurst, my company commander was a major who promoted while we were there and became a lieutenant colonel and went to command seven RHA. So he was an airborne gunner. And the only medal he had was an MBE. He'd never been on ops. It literally, he, he was promoting lieutenant colonel. So we were the, and this was the start of people starting to get medals again. Yeah. And I was kind of in at the start of the start of getting medals again. Mm-hmm. So you, you thought you were the daddy, you know? Yeah. Because I mean? <laughs> yeah. then it was. Because around that time it was Kosovo, Bosnia. Bosnia, yeah. Kosovo kind of it was much the same. Yeah. It just happened after Bosnia. Yeah. So um, I didn't do the Kosovo tour with TRF, so I did a second Bosnia tour yeah, so in '97. How was that? Shit. Yeah. I swear to God. And I, I, the reason was there was nothing going on. Yeah. And the most dangerous thing with troops is boredom. Yeah. And and there was nothing to do. And and what happens then is there's nothing to do. People have good ideas to fill your time. So it just got incredibly bullshitty. The troops were bored. And, and it wasn't a dry tour. So you've got bored mm. troops, people getting bullshitty and lager. Yeah. And there was not major dramas, but you can imagine. Yeah. You know, and, and the problem was there was just no to do. Yeah. And and there was a lot of snagging on. 
and you would go out on patrols, but it was four people in a Land Rover to go and look at X village and say what it looked like, <clears> you know? And and every time you went to visit a village, the headman would start pouring you booze. And he had to kind of have a plan of how you're gonna cope with it. But yeah, yeah. people come back from patrol leathered and stuff. Yeah. And um now and then. I mean, it wasn't. Like, no, but, but essentially it was just a really boring tour. And I remember like a month in, it was a seven month tour for some reason. And a month in just thinking, I don't know how I'm gonna push this. And the difference then was with tours was, I don't know what it's like when you were in Afghan, but there was no internet, mm-hmm. you know? Blueies were actually letters, they mm-hmm. weren't printed out. People mm-hmm. posted you a letter and you got a card for a satellite phone and you got like 15 minutes a week and there was a massive lag on it. Yeah. So it was almost not worth the hassle yeah. bringing home. So you had very little contact with home. And, and what happened was because people didn't have anything to focus on, there was all sorts of, um, G1 and family dramas, mm. that blokes worrying about what was going on at home mm-hmm. and stuff like that, you know what I mean? And mm. getting themselves worked up. You had blokes going home on leave. And the dramas was, was TRF had just gone out to Germany. Mm-hmm. So they went from Chester out to Germany, uh, end of 95, beginning of 96. Yeah. And I joined them just as they got to Germany. And a lot of people had like married the girlfriend from the UK. Just because, to get a pad. Just to get a pad and just so they didn't split up when they yeah. went to Germany. Yeah. So you had all these young lasses hauled out of Germany. The first year it was converted to armour so we were on infantry, just an exercise permanently. Yeah. So they never saw the husband. And then we went on ops. Yeah. And then these young lasses missing their mums. And the guys came home, empty bank account, wife gone. Two weeks later, they're back out. Here's your, here's your morphine and 120 rounds. Don't do anything daft. Yeah. And it was, it was a pretty dire tour, in all honesty. Yeah. Didn't, there was a couple of good incidents, you know, there was a couple of good things. I think the saving grace of it was, was every, every company had a platoon base. Right. which was a house mm-hmm. literally a rented house and um, and for various reasons my platoon spent about half the tour in that house and you were just away mm-hmm. and um, and the thing was as well our company was based in Gorni Vakouf and the platoon house was in a place called Prozor and between the two it was a really high ridge called the Macklin Ridge so radios didn't work so we had a rebro up there so one of my sections was always up there and Christ knows what one on their own but if anyone was coming to visit you yeah, no. They had a pass there. Yeah, yeah. So you could all be sat around watching MTV and having brews. And then you knew in 15 minutes someone's going to arrive. So when they arrived, you were doing a weapon handling lesson or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Looked like you were doing yeah, yeah, but I swear that was one of the things that kept people sane. Um, and, and we did a few. And the thing was, as well, was I was with um, B Company and we had the quietest tour. A Company had quite a busy one because there was an attempted coup up in. Um, and a sort of um, Serbian bit of Bosnia and mm-hmm. stuff, and there was a bit going on, we were just doing note. But my platoon got sent to reinforce C Company, who essentially there were some villages, which before it all kicked off had been Muslim villages, mm-hmm. up in the hills above a town called um, Yaitse. And Yaitse was Croat. And when it kicked off, the Croats from Yaitse cleansed these villages, just pushed everyone out. And the UN had gone back up to these villages, repaired the houses, brought all tools and stuff in, so these people sort of could farm again and, and they were going to go up there and resettle these people back in the village mm-hmm. and the crowds mined it mm-hmm. and when they first went up there there was a mine strike um, and a recce platoon at that time had dealt with this local who'd stood in the mine in his garden you know what I mean and so they decided they were going to withdraw everyone but until they decided what they were going to do they were going to protect the village so the crowds didn't go in and burn it again and see so company up there tired and so my platoon got sent up to, to reinforce them and so we went up, went up there um, for a few days and it was a long drive 
up there in your wagons and this and the other village. But we one thing which almost to me made that whole tour worthwhile was we were patrolling from this little village, heading out in the hills around it just to make sure there's no one being a, a dick. Mm-hmm. And we're driving along, two of my warriors from my platoon. We passed a couple of houses in the middle of nowhere and a bloke ran out waving his arms and we stopped. And talking to him through the interpreter transpires that they were Muslims who moved back into the houses when the Croats had come to cleanse it. They'd hidden in the basement and hadn't been found. And there was mother, father, two or three little kids and granny she was around a million years old and they'd been hiding there for days in the basement mm. they'd run out of food when they'd heard British army driving past they thought it was the Croats and hadn't come out and eventually stuck their head out and saw us and we got the radio and UNHCR so the United Nations High Commission for Refugees was going to come and collect them but they hadn't eaten and we had emergency 10 man ration packs in the back of the wagons so we just started cranking out brews mm. and giving chocolate to the kids mm. and the guy was crying and hugging us and stuff because oh. you imagine he thought him and his family were going to die yeah. and he looks out and saw us and at that moment he just knew he was absolutely alright he was alright yeah. wow. and, and, and that that was probably one of the one of the best things that happened to me in the army mm. mind it that filled a day mm-hmm. there was another seven months of yeah. <laughs> much going on I mean kind of seven months of nothing made it worthwhile but that, that, that. I think back now and I think I wonder if those kids what, what, yeah, were they? remember that now yeah you know? would. and it was the thing was it was so easy for us no one was going to bother us we parked up two warriors and mm. then they would never have had a go at us anyway no. but just to be able to so easy for us and such a life changing thing for them yeah. that was that was good what was what was the threat for because obviously the Brit there was obviously a war going on but the British but by that stage there wasn't on no, that tour right. they, they'd wrapped okay. the, the, the peace agreement had been signed right. there was friction people were dicks yeah. to each other yeah. but there was no fighting no. and that, that's why it was so dull you know, broadly speaking, it had settled down, but mm. we were still there. Still there. Um, and the only thing I used to do, which kept me sane, was part of the agreement was they'd have to collect in all of the weapons and they put in what called cantonment sites, which are just essentially arms codes. Mm-hmm. And they weren't allowed to take them out. So we used to go and inspect them, just literally just doing a armory check, make mm-hmm. sure they hadn't taken any weapons out. And I, I had um, four cantonment sites that I covered and I'd do them all once a month. So it just got me a chance to go out for a spin yeah. with me and a couple of the guys in the Lanny. And we'd go and sit and have a coffee and smoke awful Bosnian fags with them and stuff. And at least it got you out, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but it was, a, for the troops, there was a lot of stacking on. Mm. You know, it was, it wasn't very exciting. Mm. And it just dragged. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. And, and like I say, you know, connectivity to home wasn't great. Yeah. And because people weren't busy, they could, think about stuff so obviously in recent times the the mental health of soldiers has become a bigger you know it's, it's big more spotlight on it and you know how people were moved around do you think you know like you said before there was they moved to Germany got transitioned to armoured on exercise all the time then deployed for it do you think that could have uh, you know I don't know who makes these decisions but I guess at the time you know, with the mental health of soldiers was never even taken into consideration. No, and I, and I suppose these, uh, yeah, I get exactly what you mean. They were, these were big plans of how battalions moved around and yeah. stuff. They weren't going to change it, but it did make it difficult. And funnily enough, I think it was most difficult for pads. Yeah. Um, young pads or people with long-term girlfriends and stuff. Yeah. Young guys. He's just, you know, got on with it. Yeah. You know, they're allowed to drink. Yeah, as long as they didn't get in too much trouble yeah. you know but people 
you know, I had a few guys in my platoon who were just um, really subdued about family stuff back home. Mm -hmm. They just weren't themselves because there was some drama with the wife, but they couldn't communicate enough, mm -hmm. but they weren't busy enough not to think about it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And some guys had shockers. You know, going home, wife gone, oh, yeah. back on ops. Because the families were still all up in the air because they'd really just arrived in Germany. Yeah. You know? And we had a lot of young wives because the guys had married. You know, you've got like... You've got your hardcore army. I mean, it was cellar as well. Cellar, which, which out on its own. Out on its, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. It's not like you're in a major city. No. It's tiny. Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's a nice location. It's nice, but it's as far east as the British Army got in Germany. So yeah. a long way from home. And even then, you know, it was um, it was pre-budget airlines. Mm. So you couldn't like leap on an easy jet from Hanover or something. You know, when we got back from Bosnia, we had... Um, Three or four weeks still in Germany before we went on leave. Mm. And I thought, like, Jesus Christ, I'm flying home for a weekend. 500 quid it cost me in 1997. Just that, that's, you know, yeah. you couldn't get back. No. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. And then you did, so that was Bosnia, your second tour of Bosnia. Yeah. And then, so briefly, I want to just, just touch on the career path of, a, of an officer. So you were a platoon commander at this time. Yeah. yeah. And then how... So obviously, as a normal, normal, um, normal entry person like myself, you, you do your four years is what you minimum, but you basically sign up for twenty three years, and you can or twenty two, and then you've got the VENG or whatever it is. Um, but as an officer, it's quite different, isn't it? So you do. Yeah, yeah. So and it, it changed. So when I commissioned, you could either commission on a short service commission or a regular commission, and a short service commission essentially guaranteed you three years. And then you could do a further two one-year extensions. And in that time, you could apply for a regular commission. And if you'd done enough that they thought you were worth investing in, you were given a regular commission, which guaranteed you a job till you were 55. Mm -hmm. But when I joined, you could still also join on a regular commission straight away. And I got offered a regular commission. Right. So I joined straight away, knowing that I had a full career, a full career yeah. if, if I wanted to. Um, but they've changed it now and everyone comes in on short service right. which kind of makes sense because they're putting a lot of you know on your on your Santos report we reckon this person's definitely what we want for yeah, the rest yeah. of ever yeah. so you're coming in a um, short service commission then you have to apply to get an extension and the other big difference is if you joined on a on a short service commission and then left during that period of time um, you didn't get a ton of pension right. and it didn't happen until you were 55 mm -hmm. Whereas if you're a Reg C, once you've done 16 years, you could leave on your pension. Right. Okay. Which drove a lot of behaviour and still does. Like, yeah. you know, so I left after nearly 19 years. But if you're at 14 years, you're not going to leave. No, you might as well. You're going to hang around for 16 yeah, to get yeah. your pension. You know. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of that's kind of how it works. So you can bang out at any point on your Reg C. Right. Um, but the big thing now for for officers is is getting the conversion. If you don't get the conversion, you can do a max of six years. Really. Yeah, and, and, and that's driven by your performance, but also how many people they need. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. So a lot of people got stuffed when the army were reducing in size and, and um, the redundancy and stuff. Mm. An easy way for them to trim down the number of officers was just to not extend people. Not extend people yeah. So a lot of people who'd done well and wanted to stay in didn't, didn't get given the option. Yeah. But your, your career path, you, you were fusiliers when you... Two well, one RF when you first deployed, but two RF, yeah. two RF was were your first, yeah, main, main unit, and then you moved. When did you move? You moved from Fusiliers for to well, yeah, I did my company command in two Royal Anglian, but essentially the way it works, um, 
with an officer there's not a lot of command in the career yeah that's what you join for and that's what all the recruiting's <clears> about but there's an awful lot of dicking around at desks goes mm-hmm. on in between mm-hmm. and um so you commission and you'll do infantry you know example uses you'll be a platoon commander mm-hmm. then you'll do your second tour sort of junior officer job which might be company two ic or you go off to depot or you do a support platoon mm-hmm. or something like that and you may do you may do another one of them and then when I was a lad you then went off and did a thing called junior division staff college which was for captains mm-hmm. and that trained you how to do staff jobs I don't do that now I think you do a shorter course and then you do your captain staff jobs which at regimental duty is like our ops but mm-hmm. there's all sorts of other stuff in brigade headquarters and mm-hmm. stuff like that and you go off and do that um, and you may do a few of them then you promote to major and now you go off on promotion to ICSC so intermediate command and staff course and that trains you how to do formation like sub brigade and divisional mm-hmm. level planning mm-hmm. and stuff and then what you normally do then is after that you do an initial grade two job which is a low-end um major staff job you then do your subunit command so you get your company you mm-hmm. then do a subsequent grade two which is a more demanding staff job and then you may keep doing them until you pick up and promote to lieutenant colonel mm-hmm. so in all that time so i did 19 years and command wise i did a team commander mm-hmm. out in germany then I was OC Mortars, mm-hmm. which was fun. Oh, yeah. mate. And in fact, you know what? I was the luckiest man. I've, I've been really lucky in that my rifle platoon was drums. Right. Because we were armoured infantry, and an armoured infantry battalion wasn't scaled for a machine gun platoon. Yeah. And some of them still managed it sort of in the black economy. But the other, one of the big things was, mid-90s, army recruiting was dire. Mm. There was no one in the army because mm. the economy was booming. Mm. The army wasn't doing anything. And we hadn't started doing the Commonwealth recruiting. Yeah. You know, so we had no soldiers, yeah. and um, so there was no way they could afford to have a machine gun platoon, well, but yeah, uh, and, and, and not have a rifle platoon. So, so drums became five platoon and B company, and there were some other guys in it who weren't drummers, but it was mainly drums. So I got, I think, I think when I took over five platoon, I think I was the youngest bloke in the platoon. I was a graduate, you know, I was twenty two, <laughs> and it was, <laughs> and the thing that always struck me about that. And the great thing was with drums is drums promotion is like dead man's shoes. Mm. So you get older guys at every yeah, rank yeah. who've done a ton yeah. and they've always been drums together. So they're really, really coherent. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And um, I just remember I had millions of Lance Jacks. Yeah. I think the scale for, I just had millions of Lance Jacks who were all shit hot. Yeah. And everything just worked because you had millions of blokes and everyone and knew, knew each what, other. And you knew what they were doing. They were well. all each other's best man yeah. and you know and they knew each other knew what they were at, and that was that was brilliant and then I went from that to mortars and you know what mortars are like and um, that just suited me down the ground as well you know I loved I loved that mortaring was great fun because yeah. it's interesting I mean, and challenging for, for people who don't know if you're not familiar with the infantry unit and what mortars mortars between in any unit have got a very special um reputation well basically what happens with mortars is is mortaring is quite technically difficult yeah so you tend to have older soldiers doing it and because of that what then happens is you've got a platoon full of heavy shredders old guys mm. if there's little scrotes in rifle companies like a little 18 or 19 year old rifle company who's, who's working it if he gets sent to mortars you'll not get away with it so they get sent to mortars but then what they become in time is an older scrote. And mortar platoons, and no one else does mortar, and so they're kind of in their own little world. Yeah. I loved it. I, yeah. I loved it. They were, they were such a laugh. Good fun. You know? 
and they were really good. You know, they were they were good at mortaring. We did Batus, you know, mm-hmm. the big exercise out in Canada. Canada yeah. And Jesus, they were we we got really slick, mm. really slick. I loved it. They were really good blokes, and so I was just incredibly lucky. So I done the drums platoon, which was just senior. Yeah, of and then mortars. Yeah. You know, I just couldn't shift for. I mean, that 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 period of um, soldiering and the army, as it were, especially in the Fusiliers, was what I know. You've got so that that was a generation of senior bods. You know, yeah. you have 15, 15 year old bods and you know private soldiers. That, or yeah, because because I think then as well, the expectation from a lot of people was now young guys join and want to get on in the ranks. Mm-hmm. People weren't quite so. You know what I mean? Keen to do it. They would, they would just, they would do, just do their time yeah. and crack on. Yeah. You know, and you still had, it didn't happen much, but you still had the odd 20-year private yeah. hanging around. Yeah, which is... Who, you know, they were good at organising areas. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, but again, as the operations changed, that that became more of a hard harder thing to do. And I think there's a lot of... Turnover became different as well. I yeah. Because the wars changed. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The wars changed because people left because of what, what, what happened. Well, I think, yeah, and I think a lot of people got burnt out. I think a lot of people just joined to do it. Mm. Yeah. You know, you joined to do it, you've yeah. done it. That's why I've done yeah, it. Yeah, it's why well, recruitment is highest during wartime. Yeah, so. yeah, because young blokes want to know what it's like. Yeah. yeah, if they can do it. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, then I did mortars, then I did junior division staff college, and I went to instruct at mortar division, mm-hmm. which was good fun. You know, I could have done a more demanding staff job as a as a captain, but I love mortaring, and mortarmen are a good laugh. Mm-hmm. So I spent two years like the spiritual home of mortaring. Yeah, just all the army's finest scrotes coming in for two years. <laughs> it was it was brilliant, and then I went out to Northern Ireland um, as brigade staff. Right. So I did two years out in Northern Ireland working in a brigade headquarters there, um, which is and I just got married then as well. So we went out there accompanied, and that was that was good. Northern Ireland was funny. Because, mm. you, you know, the, the army I joined, as I said before, it was just Northern The infantry did Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. No one else did it. And you had guys who'd done endless tours at every rank. And people knew Northern Ireland and how it worked absolutely inside out. You know, mm-hmm. you'd hear blokes. I remember when I joined RF, you go across the science mess for a drink. And there'd be, like, sergeant majors who could discuss streets mm-hmm. and addresses in towns in, in Northern Ireland. They just mm-hmm. knew it inside out. But by the time I got out there then... Pirates of Persian Army were on ceasefire. It was just the dissidents who, there weren't many of them, and they were nothing like as capable as Pyra. Mm-hmm. And it was getting quite quiet. And um, when I was there, we kind of went through a period of, I think the first bit was, we were doing stuff that we'd always done, but there weren't many baddies around. Mm-hmm. And then it became not doing very much stuff because there weren't many baddies around. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the interesting problem we had as a brigade headquarters, not a problem, but a thing we noticed was, we got a lot of units cycling through the brigade because people were doing six month tours but as a brigade headquarters we were there for two years yeah. units that hadn't been in Northern Ireland for a while would come out and be a bit punchy because they still felt like it was um, the old days the old days yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, and you know people forget now that Northern Ireland in the 80s was mental, yeah, it was mental. you know units went and took casualties that wouldn't look yeah. different to well I mean I, I, did, I was very naive to it and I did some research a couple of weeks ago on it, and fuck the amount, the amount of numbers of casualties you yeah, get. Insane, and and they, they pulled stuff off like there was the Balagoli bus bombing where they blew up a bus mm. with troops returning from leave, yeah. stuff like that. You know, absolutely mental. Mm. And then even when I was out there, you know, people forget about um, public order and stuff. You know, yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. Now, you know, people weren't dying very often. It was a lot. But when it's dark and you've got a shield and a stick and you've got a visor that's steamed up and there's people loving petrol bombs at you and firing ball bearings at you and if you fall over, someone's going to kick you to death. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard, you know, it's yeah. it hard, but, but it, it, it was quietened down quite a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. But Northern Ireland had just defined the infantry for years. Yeah. Obviously, because I joined, I joined 2006 and I joined GRF who have got so many people who have done a lot of public order so we yeah. were still kind of tr- doing that training because we were on TRP but it was just interesting being around because even though it died down there was still a lot of those yeah, you know, yeah, still yeah. Like, that a lot going on yeah. and the Fusiliers had done a ton of tours mm. I think between the the battalions so one, two, three, five, I think the Fusiliers had done something like more tours than any other regiment or something yeah. so it was just dripping in Northern Ireland the few, yeah. you know the army was but the Fusiliers especially yeah and then, um, yeah, yeah. And so I did did that. Then I picked up for promotion, but in between finishing Northern Ireland and going to promotion, I went to Iraq for the first time. Right. So that was 2004 <laughs> then, with um, attached to the Americans. And what that was, was they, um, kind of arrogantly, the role was a counterinsurgency advisor in the American Corps headquarters, because mm-hmm. we were doing Northern Ireland. They wanted someone from finishing Northern Ireland, so I went out there. But... It, by the time I got there that role wasn't there because I think the Americans had gone yeah thanks for that yeah you know because Northern Ireland the police were on your side yeah. it was your country we're all over them on intelligence yeah. we spoke the language we understood the culture it was nothing well, like Iraq yeah. and I think they had a couple of Brits turning up and saying of course what we used to do in Belfast and like, yeah thanks for that mate yeah, so by the time I got out I was a staff officer in the, in the corps headquarters for four months um, which was interesting good um, working with the Americans was interesting you know I don't say that in a take the piss they were they were good yeah you know and then um, Jesus they worked hard you know and one thing I noticed talking about the mental health thing they did year long tours yeah. Jesus man you, you saw some guys because I was in the core headquarters who were just empty you know what I mean yeah. and some of them did some of them did stuff yeah, like um, right. there's just a bit of hoovering going on so yeah, that yeah, nice. that's yeah <laughs> some of them did stuff like um They'd gone out for the handover takeover early yeah. on the tour. So they'd gone out a month early. They ended a year and then stayed for a month for handover takeover. And they and they didn't get planned in leave from the outset. The units got given X amount of leave that they dished out. He didn't know when it was going to be and not everyone got it. And it was kind of expected that on the whole, if there wasn't enough to go around, officers wouldn't take it. So I was working with guys who'd done 11, 12 months and honestly just had no left in and, and it. Man, it, imagine having a family. Uh, horrific, horrific. And then you just imagine the dramas. Yeah. You know, I remember one night I was in my Corrie Mech sleeping and I heard um, crack and thump. And I thought, Gee, I'm in the middle of this enormous camp. Mm. How's that How's that happening? Yeah, so crack and thump. I thought, um, I'm not going to go out because I'm not dressed like an American. And in mm. the dark, there's every chance an American will zap me. Yeah. Something's going on. So <laughs> I made ready and I lay on the floor of my Corrie Mech covering the door. And after a while, it kind of stopped. I thought, oh well, went back to bed. And the next day I went in the office. And what it was, and this was the kind of thing that was going on a lot, was a bloke would be on the phone to his missus. He'd been out there for 10, 11 months. Mm-hmm. And um, she'd binned him. And he'd been, quite a few of them were, it was distilling alcohol. They were, mm-hmm. they were making hooch, because they were dry, the Americans. Yeah, but yeah. were there that long, some of them were. And he got leathered, nicked a Humvee, and was driving around camp just shooting up the accommodation. Christ, but he was, you know, he was 
done. You were spent. You yeah. know what I mean? And and I had like American officers I was working with sat in tears and stuff about you know about the families and mm. things. And they had one where because they all came from the, the same camp and American camps like back in, in America were so big they had their own schools and stuff and there was a yeah. graduation and they put it like on a big screen everyone went to watch it and they were in ribbons you know and he just thought Christ and 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 I'd taken over from Britain another Brit went take over from me and I remember one of the guys I worked with a guy called Sam Shattuck who was a really nice guy him just saying he said I can't believe you know you're the third Brit so this next guy's going to be the third yeah. Brit we're going to see and it's still just me yeah cracking on and but, it was I don't know I guess America's force is so big that I guess the cost of moving a whole I, th- I think the thing was just it was just how they've always done it yeah. I think it's largely habit you know mm. what I mean you know and, and the one thing is it gets continuity mm. but people were fragged and this was in the core this was in the yeah. core headquarters Christ knows what it was like for the guys on the ground because some of the American areas were getting yeah. smashed you know we got out and about a bit so I went to, it was good I went to visit places you know went up to went to Fallujah just before they went to attack for mm-hmm. again it was, they'd lost it to the insurgents and stuff but talking to the marines up around there Jesus man their casualty rates were absolutely stinking mm-hmm. and when you think about and they're having to push it for a year yeah. you know if you start doing the men, you know if you're two months in yeah. and there's a ton of casualties and you think a year I'm gonna how, be how am I going to get to the end of this yeah. you know so it did kind of indicate to me because you, you start running out you know and to keep it going for a year look to me a bit much of an ask mm. in all honesty you know and um, yeah so that was that was kind of quite um, an interesting thing to see a contrast between our yeah. how, how we worked and how they worked I mean I was with I did a podcast with Lawrence Kayser and he he was one of the few where he did I think he did Herrick eight eight nine so he did Herrick eight and then stayed for a bit of nine and then went back out on Herrick ten and so he was there and he went back out to the same location so the chances of anyone doing that is very slim because you know you always have even if you deployed you know a year later the chance of you going back to the same place is very slim it's like it's just that's the difference between the British Army is we have to then you you go somewhere you're fresh six months every six months you have to build up whereas obviously he was there he was back in he was having contacts where he was six months ago, you know, and it was just being able to be in that position of knowing where they're going to no, come yeah, from. Yeah, I was trying to say, new, in like new firing points and stuff, yeah, didn't exactly, it? Yeah, yeah. But on like, the other hand, you kind of run out of steam. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a, a graft. But yeah, so I did that tour, came back, did staff college. And then oddly, I did my subunit command first. So mm-hmm. normally you do your initial staff job. And what happened was actually, I was meant to be going off to some shitty procurement job. And the job was, while I was at staff college, the job was binned. Right. And at the time, two Royal Anglian needed a rifle company commander and didn't have any Royal Anglian cat badge people available. Mm-hmm. And my boss, when I was at Staff College, was a Royal Anglian. And he got in touch with them and said, this bloke's just become available. He's okay. Mm-hmm. You need a company commander. Yeah. Do you want to give it a, give it a go? Yeah. And so, we, um, so I went to two Royal Anglian, which is weird because I, I'd kind of thought um, I'd go to these days. Yeah. And I kind of flapped. Yeah. you know what I mean but actually it, I had a brilliant time I had a brilliant time yeah. and um, they were again they were a regiment or a battalion that was in a good place mm-hmm. you know they were in good nick and um, and there was something to be said for arriving there as a um, as a new face because mm-hmm. the reality is if you go back to the Fusiliers as a company commander there's people there who saw you as a platoon commander mm-hmm. getting lost yeah. 
and yeah. losing your pistol yeah. and all that sort of thing. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, Whereas yeah. I arrived there, no one knew. Yeah. You know, knew anything about me. And um, and I took over the company in um, in Ballykelly, mm-hmm. in uh, in Northern Ireland. Um, but then it was dead. It was dead. And this comes back to so the what fact year? That so what year was? That was two thousand five. So two thousand five, I took over the company in Northern Ireland. And this is back to if there's not much going on, bored troops get in trouble. Yeah. And um, this was a stage where people weren't going out much, so there wasn't much patrolling. There's tons of places out of bands, and this was a residential tour, so you could go out. Yeah, tons yeah. of places out of bands, so you couldn't go to the bars and stuff, yeah. and nothing going on. Yeah. So there's nothing going on. So troops went out. They yeah. went to out of bands places, just permanent drama. Yeah. And um, but it's a good way to take over a company, because if it's in shit state. There's only one direction of travel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, oh, we can get onto it when I got to off, but there was a lot of good people there. Mm-hmm. And at the same time I arrived, shortly after my company sergeant major, I got a new company sergeant major, it was Gapped. I got a company sergeant major, a guy called John Phillips, who was an absolute legend. It just got a new CQMS, a guy called Kev Donovan, absolute legend. Mm-hmm. My platoon sergeants, as it transpires, were, were brilliant. I was just really lucky. Yeah. And I just come back to, every time I got a command, I was just so lucky yeah. with who I got. Mm-hmm. And Shortly after I arrived, we were warned off we were going to um, Iraq mm-hmm. next year. And so we actually got pulled out of Northern Ireland and we went to uh, Excise in Jordan, mm-hmm. which was brilliant. I mean, good training, you know, slow pace, you got to do this, but you lived in the desert together as a company mm-hmm. and we just became a cohesive, good company. Yeah. And just through hard training, but having a laugh when we weren't training. Mm-hmm. You know, at night, it was non tack at night, you just sat out in the desert pissing yourselves laughing and having a broom mm. it was brilliant and then we um, and then so went with them on Telecate um, next year in 2006 um, which was which was I mean, you know I've heard you say before it was uh, bloody dark was, <laughs> was seven months and um, I'd hand on heart so it was the best seven yeah. months of my life mm. um, which it shouldn't shouldn't be yeah. but it's just the experience of it isn't it Yeah. you, you know what I mean and um when we initially went out there, two or Anglian were, were split up. One of the companies was um, the Brigade Reserve. One of them was kind of doing convoy ops and things. And then my company was doing liaison with the Iraqi army. And another company was doing liaison with the Iraqi police. Was, was poachers light roll? Or yeah, we were light roll. So we were out there in Snatch. Yeah. Um, and we, uh, so the first bit of the tour, uh, it was frustrating because we were there doing liaison, but there were people there doing grand holding. There was just one battle group covering Basra, which was um, one LI, one LI infantry. Um, and it was getting livelier and livelier. And mm-hmm. they were starting to do lots of strike ops and stuff. Mm-hmm. And there was me going up every couple of days to go and talk to an Iraqi brigadier who wasn't interested in talking to me, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And he thought, oh, we're missing, we're missing it. And then that battle group was so busy, increasingly my company got tasked to support them, mm-hmm. often just give them a platoon or a couple of multiples or something. And then the decision was taken that the situation getting so bad in the city that they, and it was beyond the span of command of one battle group, it was just too many plates spinning. So they reformed the poachers as a battle group and we took south of the city. Mm-hmm. So we were city south battle group and there was city north, one and I just took the north of the city. And um, and, and the, the situation was getting, we were, we were lucky in that when we arrived the situation was one great but it wasn't shit mm-hmm. when we left the situation was shit mm-hmm. but we had the opportunity to get better with them mm-hmm. you know what I mean if we'd hit the ground like it was at the end of our tour yeah, that would have been hard yeah. yards yeah. and in fact you know we were taken over by um, two RGJ two, two Royal Green Jackets who don't exist anymore 
and they were good they were up for it but Jesus they it was bad at the end of the tour mm. and they just had to hit that on the first day yeah you know and so we um we got better through the tour and it and certainly so the first bit of the tour was this shitty liaison thing we did then the next bit of the tour I just remember it was endless framework patrolling you know mm. just out on the ground mm -hmm. mainly at night mm -hmm. and he lived this weird existence and you know experience it as well where you never slept at normal times mm. and he just got bites of sleep mm. you know so you do like you get in at like three in the morning and have four hours kip and get up and start planning stuff there might be something through the day yeah. and then yada yada and you just live this weird existence um, and I spent more I, I, certainly I was just nocturnal for my middle bit because we were mainly out on the ground at night yeah. in the city and you just ballooning around the city in the dark and there was a curfew so there weren't many people around mm. but it was good and we got good we got good at moving around the city and we knew our patch really really well and we um, we just got good at moving as a company and looking out for each other and stuff mm -hmm. and and mm -hmm. then we started doing strike ups and, and one moment I really realised like what, what I had with a company was we did this strike up fairly early on and then um, Basra City's on the, the west uh, side of the Chateau Arab big river big waterway but there were some buildings on the east side as well and the strike up so like a raid essentially yeah. was on a house on the east side and there was only two bridges across the Chat and one was down next to Basra Palace where we were in the south and one was right at the north of the city next to um, Chateau Arab Hotel and you had been dicked to death mm -hmm. everywhere you went you were dicked mm -hmm. you know you know, people were wrecking yeah, you yeah. and on the mobile phone saying where you were and so if we all just piled out the gate and hammered across this bridge, we'd be, didn't know yeah. we were coming. And so the plan was, one of my platoons through the day, and the strike was in the, in the night, was going to patrol all the way up through the city to the bridge at the north, just looking like they were out on a framework patrol, yeah. and then patrol all the way back down. And then when the strike went in, they were going to be out of cordon, so they were going to secure the area as the main strike came smashing in across the bridge, mm -hmm. but it would stop anyone running. And um, they set off and they had an ECM failure, started to come back. They set off again and one of the wagons, because we were light, but we had two warriors, because warriors had to lead moves. Mm -hmm. So our two warriors, one of the warriors got ill, started to come back in. And you had to move so slowly through the city because the ID threat was so high, you know, yeah. doing your VP checks and things. You start looking at it, going, they're not going to, there's no way they're going to be up all the way through the city, across and all the way back down in time. So that's not the plan now plan is we're all just going to go out the front gate and there's a battle group strike up my company with a cordon mm -hmm. battle group strike up we'll just go out the front gate like we're on patrol and we'll just be around the city and then when we get the word we'll all align hit the bridge go across the bridge hit this target and so we head off the city and it was just my company tack and, and two multiples so two half platoons and I was with one of the multiples and then as always happened in the city comms wrapped mm. I couldn't even talk to my other multiple couldn't talk to battle groups so I'm just we're just ballooning around the city going well this strike up's going to happen and we're not going to know not going to know, yeah. not going to know what to do and eventually I, I said to Sam Greenhill who was the multiple guy we'll, we'll just go for it we'll just cross the bridge and just hope we're not too early and we compromise it or we're yeah. too late and we're not needed yeah. and as I hit the bridge my missing multiple hit the bridge at the same time right. and they thought exactly the same thing <laughs> and the platoon commander had just felt confident enough to use his own initiative and do it and yeah. we hid it at the same time in an order of march <laughs> and in front of us was the striking call sign it all just i swear to god we couldn't have got it that right if the comms worked comms, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i thought at that point if my platoon my company or that 
kind of free thinking and and um, take the initiative. Mm. I, I, we're, we're okay here. Yeah. And it just all the way through, people just did the right thing at the right time. And what made it easy was when you when you company commander, it's easy to forget that between you and the between you and the problem is um, team commanders, team mm-hmm. sergeants, section commanders, section two ICs. And if they're all doing their job, it buys you space to think. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that, that's happening. You just go, shit, I need to deal with it. You go, yeah. right, no. no dealing he's dealing with it. it. He's yeah. dealing with it. He's dealing with it. I can have a bit of a, yeah, yeah. a think about it. Mm-hmm. And they were just, you know, and I just remember like, we responded to some incident, I don't know what it was. And I, I was in on the incident. One of my team commanders going, do you want me to push north and just satellite around there to secure the north? I'm like, yeah, brilliant mm-hmm. idea. Mm-hmm. I would have said that if I'd thought of it. Yeah. You know, and they just did stuff like that yeah. all the time. And then, um, and it was busy, but that's good. Yeah. Um, and the the situation was kind of getting worse and worse. We got mortared and rocketed a lot in Bajra Palace, and that mm. was getting more and more. And um, there was a lot of ID strikes, um, and we hadn't been there long. There was a Lynx helicopter shot down. I don't even remember seeing that news. Mm-hmm. There was a the Lynx shot down over the city, and that um, that dropped, and it there was an unoccupied block of flats, and it hit the top of that and went all the way down the ground floor so the recovery of that and they were all killed was like a two day cordon and and I would say that was that was the moment when the situation kind of changed and and I was still doing um, Iraqi army liaison so I got sent up to the cordon to be the sort of LO with the Iraqi security forces Mm -hmm. which was pretty difficult but um, the locals then I think they saw that we weren't invulnerable Mm. and talk about Northern Ireland there was like people on a cordon with shields. So the locals shot at them or mortared it. Everyone went, oh shit, yeah. These aren't the same rules as Northern mm-hmm. Ireland, you know? Mm-hmm. And then um, after that, I think that was the marker that things were changing. Things got progressively worse. And we were doing tons of strike ops. Yeah. Um, and sorry, yeah, so the ID flows through the roof and there was a steady trickle of ID casualties as well. And I'll tell you what, you what you noticed with that was, you got things called sync rep, serious incident reports. So after every contact or, or casualty or whatever, a sync rep, was a report on it that was pushed out and you would look at the sync rep hoping to see that they had done something that you wouldn't have done. Yeah. So you could go, ha, that wouldn't have been us. Yeah. We wouldn't have done that. And sometimes you could go, oh, we wouldn't have done that. Sometimes you look at it and you go, ah, oh, shit. Mm-hmm. You know, because you make your own look. Yeah. But there's still a bit of luck in it. And then, and then we did a, a strike up. This was in... Um, June, July, um, in an area called Timinia, which was, and, and the Shat, the Shat Al Arab Waterway, it's for all Basra's inland because the Shat's so big it's a port. Mm-hmm. And Timinia, where Timinia is, there's lots of the docks. And so this bit of Timinia, it's almost like a peninsula going out into the Shat because either side of it is a big dock harbour thing. Mm-hmm. And on this peninsula is a slum, basically. And so there was int, there'd been a strike up the night before and they'd got some int that we were going to strike this building in Timinia. So there was a company location called the um, Old State Building where there was a company of light infantry who were warrior, but they were part of our battle group. Right. And so my company and battle group TAC were moving up to the Chateau, sorry, to the um, Old State Building. We were going to hold there, ready for the strike up. Mm. And on the way up, someone took a shot at us. <laughs> it was the first time we'd been shot at. Yeah. And we did the old hard, fast and aggressive in the, aggressive in the depth, but didn't get him, but got into the... Um, Old State Building and parked up our snatch and Wayne and this became an absolute optag day you know these days where just everything happens like yeah. a bad exercise at optag and we're in there 
and there's this thing called broadsword which was a seeking helicopter with brilliant thermal optics yeah. and it could, the optics are so good it could be looking at something and they couldn't hear it mm-hmm. and it was watching the target building which was a, a enemy weapons cache a big one their main one yeah. while they were watching it people started turning up and loading some stuff in the cars and taking it to other locations so they held us because what we're going to do is track them see where they went generate some other battle groups or companies for strikes and hit them all at once yeah so we were holding in the um, old state building, but they dipped us going in there. So I knew something was on, and they fucking plastered it with mortar fire. Now we were indoors, so you were kind of all right, but all my wagons were outside. Mm. And snatch aren't that armoured, and all my snatch got fucked. The mm. tyres were gone, the radiators were gone, the, um, well not all of them, some of them. Windscreens, not penetrated, but you couldn't see out of them. Yeah, yeah. And the, um, the LI company had some snatch that they didn't use very much. So... <laughs> People had to dash out and start cross-decking um, ECM into right. E-Snatch. Mm-hmm. And there was also a blind sticking out in the middle of the vehicle park, like a tail fin from mortar that hadn't gone off. And we got the word that we were going to go on the strike ops. They just parked an F3432, you know, an armoured vehicle, straddling this mortar bomb. So if it did go off... It was projecting you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we hammered out in the peninsula, pulled up at this building, and it was just a little um, single-storey breeze block thing. And... The, the um, research, the Royal Engineer Search Advisor had said they'd probably booby trapped the door. So, so we, my striking platoon arrived at the door with the interpreter and sort of shouted, there was light on in it. There was no windows, but there was like gaps in the roof where light coming out and sort of shouted, if you're in there, you <laughs> come out with your hands up. And there was nothing. So what we said we were going to do was, even though it was a slum, they all had aircon units. Mm-hmm. So the guys wellied that off the wall <laughs> with sledgehammers and went in through the hole. Yeah. And it was mental. Inside, there were piles of mortar rounds, rows and rows of mortar barrels, piles of rockets, um, Dushka machine guns, um, and there was a bomb factory at one end where you could literally see every step of them making a bomb. There was like lathes and stuff. Mm. There was no one there, but there was plates of food on the ground. So there's obviously no mirror coming before. Yeah, so we we then secured the area, and Ato had to go in and clear everything so they could start loading it up. So there's two ADO wagons that are loaded it into, and there was still no space. So one of the warriors from another subunit, they piled stuff in the back of that on top of it and things. But it meant we were there for mm-hmm. hours. And while we were there, you could hear contacts in a bit of the city, and you thought, mm-hmm. fuck, that's the other companies who've been tricking. They were big contacts. Yeah. And at first you thought, because there was a bit of tribal fighting and stuff in the city, you thought, I hope that's that. And then you heard, um, like chain gun because yeah. slow you know bop bop but you yeah. thought that's, that's a chain gun that's yeah. that's our stuff then you had 30 mil yeah. shmoolies going up and stuff and big crumps and stuff and, and you, you thought realize fucking someone's in yeah. this shit and then you're thinking we've been sat here for ages I'm on a peninsula and there's only one way off it mm. and then at dawn we'd finished loading all stuff so it was light and we were just getting back to the wagons I stood at the wagon and I heard a crack and I thought um Someone stood in a detonator in the target house. Fuck, someone's lost a couple of toes. And I heard crack, crack, crack. And I thought, hang on, we're actually getting shot at here. And um, we're in this alleyway and it ran north-south on this peninsula. And the bottom of it faced the docks. And then running east-west was a little road. So we had to go down this alley, essentially, turn right and drive along the side of the docks to get back to the mainland, essentially. Mm-hmm. And all my snatch were lined up down one side of this alleyway. And there's those few cracks, and we all sort of got to the wagons, thinking, well, what's going to happen, you know? Because there was um, there was another, there was a battery of artillery in there. They'd been the outer cordon. They were formed up, and battle group tack. And um, 
people started appearing on these flat roofed houses outside the alley and firing down into the alley you know fucking hell no no sorry no we were driving down the front and as my company got to the front coming across the exit of this alley so firing up from the mainland was like burning tennis balls it was tracer but from an anti-aircraft gun from a dushka okay, i thought yeah. well, fuck well i can't drive down there and turn right yeah in a snatch <laughs> and the ceo was on the on the radio on prr because nothing else was working going yeah. you know you need to get moving yeah. and i thought i'm not sure that's a good idea so i'll go up and have a word with him and i ran up and i said i, I can't he hadn't seen the tracer thing yeah yeah and, and <clears throat> sort of tell it, well you need to get a warrior down there clear it then we can move and as i ran back to him people start firing into the alley there was little like pathways leading into it firing down them yeah i got back to it was my cqms because my sergeant major was on leave got back to him and said we're not going just yet we had to get the wagons in the side and this warrior got past us and turned right and headed up into this tracer but we were just waiting in the alley for the word and then people started appearing on the flat roofs and just firing down into the alley yeah. like um it's like fucking black hawk down you know yeah. what i mean and me and donnie were at the back of my snatch our snatch and someone got on a roof at the top of the alley and started firing down it and we thought well there's no future in the cover where we are now because it's no longer cover yeah we ran around the front of my snatch and as we dived in like inches from our feet just like a zip of automatic fire up the road you yeah. thought fucking hell you know half a second and we both would have lost our legs there yeah and at that point i had a bit of a wobble i'll be honest because um my wife was pregnant yeah our first kid who was due in a month mm. And I had this sudden thought, I suddenly thought, this is a fucking disaster, this. This is not good. And there was no comms. We couldn't talk out of it. So no one knew what was happening in there. Mm. And I thought, if we take a casualty, I, I don't know how we're going to manage this. Yeah. There's no there's no, there's no, no help coming. And we're stuck in this alley. And I had this like, um, very vivid thought of, I'm going to get killed here. And it's going to be on the news. And they're going to say, killed and he leaves a pregnant wife and they go oh that's sad and then just get on with their lives because it doesn't matter to them you know what I mean and I felt I had a bit of a dip and I look, stuck my head on I looked down and there's all all my troops in fire positions engaging people yeah. like covering down alleys and stuff and I looked down one and I had a TA lance jacket attached to my company and he was standing over a young private soldier on his knees engaging on his little walkway pointing targets out and I looked down and I thought fucking hell the legends yeah. you know we've got this yeah. alright and that gave me a massive bump and I thought well shut up Stu this is a doddle look at that lot yeah. you know they're not losing it yeah. and um, and it kind of told me that fear is um, it's kind of infectious yeah. and I think if someone had wobbled a lot of people could have wobbled yeah. but everyone was, on the wall. was was keeping it inside yeah. and and then suddenly I just you know I told before trial thing but the training kicks in mm. and I thought right how are we going to manage this if I take a casualty and there's one building which is more solid and two story and I said to Donnie if we take a casualty and we can't get comms we'll take that building and we'll hold it so we can treat the casualty and someone will eventually come mm -hmm. but we can't stay in this alley mm -hmm. and then um, no comms with the warriors we didn't know what happened but there's no more tracer so mm. a few of my guys down went, went to the front of the alley and by this stage, sorry, on the other side of the docks at the mouth of the alley, there were also some blokes firing back up the alley. Right. So it was fucking hell. There was splash everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I reckon if we did it 10 more times, someone would have got hit every mm. time. I don't know how they didn't hit us. You know? Shit like, shooting. Fuck, but yeah, yeah, shit shooting. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. From the hip on automatic yeah. is not marksmanship. Yeah. Thank Christ. But, um, so a couple of my guys went down the front of the alley to have a look to see what happened with the warrior. And the warrior had cleared this gun 
but they were being engaged from across the alleyway. And one of my guys caught a heart sore and was looking around the corner and the wall was getting shot down next to it. But he came back and said, well, can't the aircraft them? <laughs> All right then, let's go. So we mounted up. I set the guy's top cover down because we're going to go quick. You'll yeah. not hit anything and you'll just be exposed. Yeah. And we went down the end of the alley and turned right and we're driving on this edge of the docks. And I was just thinking, if a wagon gets hit and it goes into the water, I don't know what I'm going to do. Because yeah. there'll be guys in a vehicle, in the water, in body armour and we're exposed from the other side of the docks all yeah. the way along. Are we just going to stop and start stripping off and diving in under fire? And there was stuff coming between us as we drove down. Mm. We got to the end on the sort of mainlandy bit and turned left and I was in the front of the wagon I set a Donny in the back are they all through? And he said yeah they're all through and I thought fucking hell yeah. and um, so we then slowed down got the top cover up and started driving down the road and comms started coming back intermittently but what was clear was there was people all over the place with no comms and it was a, it's not a mess it was no one's fault it was just a difficult situation and we were almost at the palace Pass or pass where we were, and we're approaching a little bridge. And I thought I could now just the company could just continue in, and we'd be all right. Mm. But no one else would. Yeah. And I thought you could hear firing behind us. You thought if I was in the shit, trying yeah. to get by the palace, I'd want to hit this bridge and see an infantry company holding it. Mm -hmm. So the guys were like, we'll "Stop here," you know. So we stopped short, and um, and I thought this isn't this isn't all nine hours. It's Brecon, yeah. and we stopped, and then. Um, a couple of the call signs bombed through us and one of them had a warrior so we stopped and said can you stay with stay us please with us, yeah. <laughs> so we bagged a warrior and um, then we started I thought right well secure the bridge so I, so I saw Green Hills multiple to push, push south across the bridge and secure the far side and he pinged one of his fire teams and they were crossing the bridge and they came under fire from like a building site on the other side of the bridge and then you know I was saying my guys were legends crossing the bridge exposed called Davis and another guy and they got engaged and the guys who engaged in them dropped down behind this pile of bricks and I couldn't see but I could talk to them on PRR and I said where are they and he said um, they're, they're taking cover so I've got the worry to rock forward and chain gun a bit and rock back but there's no one there and they started engaging again he said yeah they're definitely behind that pile of bricks and I said well stick a 40 mil in it mm. you know I don't, I don't want anyone getting hurt at this stage and he said I'm not going to do that because I can't see what else is behind the pile of bricks you know he wasn't willing to do it yeah. in case there was civvies yeah, yeah. And then the guy stuck his head up and they, they got him um, and got across the bridge. Um, and by then, it appeared that everyone had got out of it. Mm -hmm. We were the last call sign. So we started heading back. So we mounted up across the bridge and as we approached, we could see the gates to the palace and we got fucking ambushed again. And um, Sergeant Greenhill's multiple was at the front and it was the best, <laughs> best reaction of I've ever seen. They all just jammed their anchors on and everyone got out, even the drivers fucking plastered them because you've got the distinct impression yeah. I was just thinking I just want to get yeah. home Fair fuck off, off. Yeah. Fuck, fuck off, off. Yeah. Um, they mounted up and I sort of said right, well we'll not keep going down that road there's another gate we'll turn left and just along there someone came up and said I had an RMP guy in the back of my wagon and he's not there now I fuck and I thought I bet he's just got in the confusion got in the wrong wagon but you couldn't take that because if someone's left out there oh, it'd be, yeah. it doesn't bear thinking about no. does it so we had to stop again and for me that was a scary moment because you thought Every bit of me was just saying, just hammer it. We're nearly home. Yeah. We had to stop, secure the area, head kick. He was found in another wagon, mounted up and drove in. And that was, so we'd been out all night. I hope he got beasted for getting another wagon. He wife. got a bit of chat too. <laughs> yeah, he did, yeah. <laughs> but even then, that's kind of the mad infantry thing, is as we drove into camp, to get enough troops on the ground, because we were pretty thinly spread, it was um, 
quartermaster's troops staggered on the gate. And as yeah. we drove in, and I had wagons with tyres out and stuff, and strike on them, and we were all caked in dust. Like, yeah, yeah. And as we drove in, and I was still wired, buzzing, but mm. even as we drove in, I thought, but he must look fucking cool. <laughs> yeah. And I felt... Felt cool. Felt cool. Yeah. And we got in, and every time they saw you coming in, they ditch you and you get plastered with mortified. So we just got straight in. Everyone just went back in the hard cover and we got mortared and you just stayed in. And yeah. So that was our first proper two-way range. But, but So you were OC at this time. Yeah. yeah. And you'd been in the army... 11 years. 11 years then. And this was your first, first time someone shot at me. First time someone shot at you. We got a little bit of light mortaring when I was in Iraq. Yeah. But everyone got a bit of light mortaring mm. there. But this was the first time. So you're absolutely right. You know, you come to this golden age of being in the mini army, in the infantry, that I'd been 11 years as an infantry officer before I got shot at. Mm. You know? Um, and the generation before me hadn't. Yeah. Most of them had never been in a contact. Yeah. You know what I mean? And um, it was. It was, it was a lick I didn't enjoy that one mm. and I was chatting about this and our RSM was a good bloke and he'd he got an MC in an early Bosnia tour where people still shot you a bit and the point he made was and it was something I remembered for the rest of the tour was he said you've got to remember there's two types of contact there's a fuck me and a fuck you mm. and in a fuck me contact you're going fuck me and in a fuck you you're going ha fuck you yeah. and we were having a fuck me contact yeah. then you yeah. didn't feel like you were on top of it we, we got on top of it yeah. you know because everyone did their job right because the troops mm. were legends and because we can shoot yeah. yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, other contact we had after that were felt like fuck yous. Also, I think because we were through the looking glass, then yeah. you felt like you knew what you were doing. So, what I want to touch on is when you got back in camp that after that contact, you you know you got back in camp and you sat there. You're you're an OC at this yeah. time. So, how old are you? I was um I was thirty two. Thirty two. So you're thirty two. So you know blokes when they've I was 21 when I first you know when I was in first contact and you know blokes are normally you know if you're looking at a platoon sergeant is really where it stops you know you stop getting in contact so I guess there's what 28 so they're quite young mm. so you're you're older and you're an OC as well and how was that when you got back into camp you're you're then you got to chill out a bit and then you've did, there was did, no fucking chilling out no I was um I was wired yeah we all got to go to I lay in bed not asleep mm-hmm. <laughs> and then um, someone came to get me to start planning another up but what I did do was I didn't I didn't like that contact mm-hmm. and I thought I didn't like that how do we make it not be like that and I just started analysing it massively mm-hmm. just thinking right how do we what what did they get us on Yeah. you know where did they get the bounce on us how do I deny that how do we deny that to them mm-hmm. What did we do well? How do I maximise that? Yeah. So I just did a lot, a lot, a lot of analysis of the of the contact. Mm-hmm. I taught my sergeant mate. Well, my sergeant major got back from his leave. He was pissed. He'd missed it. But yeah. we did a lot of talking about how do we do this better. Yeah. But um, funny enough, what you're talking about there. Um, what I do is, was someone came and knocked on the door, and essentially what happened was because the city had gone peaked on, no one allowed out unless they're in warrior. And in Basra Palace, we only had four warriors. There was, um, my company had two. Um, the artillery battery had one, and CO's TAC had one from the light infantry. And so the CO had knocked up a scratch warrior platoon out of these four. And because I had been armed infantry doing this and past, he said, Can you sort of, and um, I only knew my two warrior crews, didn't know the other two. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we had to go and do, we're 
told the plan for this task, which felt to me like it wasn't worth the effort in the current threat. Mm-hmm. But you can't say, well, no. I'm not doing it. Yeah. And that was a that whole experience of being asked to do a thing, which I thought, if we do that, we're definitely going to have people hurt and maybe killed. Yeah. That was kind of a, a dawning thing where I suddenly thought, but that is the job, Stu. Yeah. And you think, well, I've got to, I've got to get on with this. Yeah. And, and as we were planning this thing and it was getting dark again, there was broadsword up looking at the city and there was um, insurgents coming in from all over the place, setting up ambushes all over the city, but they could see them. Mm-hmm. And this task involved us going up to the north of the city and there's just more and more ambushes. And he's thinking, how are we going to get through there? And then eventually we went to see the um, IO, the intelligence officer, and there was no route from where we were to the north of the city well, that be, wouldn't have taken yeah. us through at least one ambush. And then the CEO said, okay, um, we'll not do it. Yeah. But I'd already given orders and stuff. Mm-hmm. When I gave the orders, it was interesting. The, um, the, the light infantry crew, they were armoured infantry, they knew what they were doing with their wagon, they weren't that fussed. Yeah. My two wagons kind of trusted me, so they yeah. were quite happy. The gunner, there was an officer commanding that wagon, he was a good bloke, but he knew that this was a shit idea. Yeah. And I went out after, so I saw him leave pale, and he was trying to light a fag, shaking, and he started puking. Mm. And I sort of said, come on, mate, you know, yeah. the, the blokes don't need to see us no, yeah. like this. Yeah. But I don't don't blame him at all, no, yeah. you know what I mean? But that was kind of quite a, um, in many ways, that was a more affecting experience than the contact. Just thinking, we're going to have to go out and do something, mm. maybe a bit daft. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, that's interesting seeing it from, you know, what I've, we did, I did a shit, we, we closed down the Fog Gibraltar in, in Sangin and it was, uh, honestly before that I was shitting myself, I was like fuck, we're, we're going to get smashed here, it turned out we didn't because they obviously planned it, we had loads of people on the ground so we were fine, um, but as seeing it for, as an OC, you know, you, you're going through those same you know, in your head. I bet those orders were probably one of your best set of orders you've ever given. Had to dig out a bit. Yeah. yeah. And it's, mate, it's, it's a lot of leadership. Mm. A lot of, it's a bit of it, it's just a bit of theatre. Because what I'd learned in that, you know, is <clears throat> confidence breeds confidence. <clears throat> flapping breeds flapping. <clears throat> and the worst thing you do such like that is let people see that you're flapped. Because if they think, Jesus, yeah, the OC's, the OC doesn't buy this plan. Yeah. <laughs> what hope do we have here? You know what I mean? Um, yeah, it's what there's the what the powers say. Well, who's that power commander who said Ali Ali must saves lives? Ali saves lives. Yeah, it's, yeah. The, same, it's the same kind of concept. If you're, you're confident, confident, if they look at you and go, well, he, he knows, knows he's and, and I think an important thing is, you know, with leadership is well, one of the aspects of it, which is just an important thing, is knowing your trade. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I was all right. The troops trusted me. Mm-hmm. You know, and if they think they're in safe hands, mm-hmm. they'll do stuff. Yeah, if they think you're a like a nugget quite reasonably they can think oh I'm not sure about this yeah. you know what I mean but um, yeah and then there was there was there was, there was other contacts um, but we were on it and the other ones didn't didn't feel like that first one mm-hmm. you know you felt in control you still get wired don't you yeah. you know you yeah. you're 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 still going to be spiking through the roof and... I would love to hear recorded conversations that I had in contact because I suspect we were talking a million to the dozen and quite yeah. high pitched yeah. you know what I mean yeah but um, yeah so that was all kind of fairly those couple of experiences I learned a lot quite quickly and then um, and yeah and it, and it you know a few things don't I mean one was as well I think people can tear themselves up that they've been scared 
But one thing I think dawned on me then was courage is not being scared. If you're not scared, there's nothing to be courageous about. Mm. Courage is being scared and cracking and on. Cracking on. Yeah. And you know, I've got more time for someone who's thrown up with fear and then gets on with it than yeah. someone who isn't even phased by it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's and the other thing that struck me in that contact we talked about earlier. It, it dawned on me then that that period of time where I thought we're going to get hammered here and I might get killed I was more concerned about looking shit in front of my troops yeah. than I was about being hurt yeah. and I suspect everyone felt the same mm. and I think that's what gets you through it mm-hmm. is that you, you, the fear of letting the others down is bigger than the fear of you getting hurt yeah yeah I mean well, you know I spoke to you before is when, when I got here and was in a grenade ambush years later I remember speaking to my brother and I'm like should I said to him and I was like do people think I should have because I, I was the first one who saw the, the, it was it was an RPG with grenades strapped to it fucking they lobbed it over um, and I was like should I have fucking jumped on it or whatever <laughs> like no you fucking idiot you fucking died but I, you know I think we no one died in that incident when we, you know, we had, yeah. we, I think there were six casualties from ours. But no one died. No one died, and there were seven. But they would have done a few jumping grenades. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but I mean, uh, maybe it would have played on my mind a bit more if someone had died. Maybe I'd have gone, because I was, because it was, it was one of those surreal things. You know, you, you know, you know, your body reacts, you, your mind reacts to things. Like I heard a fucking grenade ping get pulled off, and once you know that sound you know that sound yeah, you know what it is yeah, yeah. so I heard it and I just looked around I was like who set off a grenade like to all our blokes because I was standing with my platoon sergeant we were in like an L shape and I was standing there I was like who's there off a grenade and then all of a sudden I just seen this fucking land and then obviously I ran and it was like <laughs> fucking gone it was like a Jean-Claude Van Damme moment like shotgun went I had a shotgun it went flying uh, anyway but uh, like afterwards I was like I said to my boy, should I have jumped on it or should I have tried to throw it over? But you know, you just you don't know how you're going to react to those things. No, and no. and I think that's kind of part of it is. I mean, can I, you know, kind of get onto you know, I've had sort of a few thoughts about um, about how ops affects you, mm-hmm. and you know, I was saying before, I think um, every every experience in your life affects you. You know, you change because mm-hmm. you know you have kids, you have a car crash, you get binned or mm-hmm. whatever. All these things. Shape, shape you as a, yeah. as a person but ops is more intense than any mm-hmm. of that and so you know it can it can affect you even if it isn't as far as it being a problem you know it comes a point where it can become a problem and I think the sort of big things that strike me about when I think about it is first is as we were talking about before again going on ops is like going to a different planet mm. you know when you when you sleep at different times and you eat different food and it smells different and the, you know I just remember things like walking across the vehicle park in Battery Palace with a dust. You know, it's not like sand, it's like flour. Mm. And it's like over 40 degrees, and yet it's like seven o'clock at night. And you can hear all the calls to prayer from all the minarets, mm. and it's roasting hot. And you've slept three hours through the past 24 at funny times. And then also the experience of being in contact with things, but even just the fatigue and the, it's so different that it's very hard to articulate it mm. to someone who, you're not he being doesn't know doesn't you don't want to sound like a Vietnam vet but no. it's a case of and you know and imagine like when Neil Armstrong came home and people said you know what, what was, was it like, like on the moon where am I going to start with that yeah. and so I think one of the things is is that it can take you a while to get away from it mm-hmm. and you know I'd say it took me after I got back from Ops and I, I think it was easy because we just had the baby 
And so I was suddenly launched into, you know, I came home, my, she was born in the middle of my leave, and then I went back on Oxford for four months. But when I got back, I was straight in with a baby, which actually pulled me back into right. that world again. Yeah. But I still, I'd say for a year, I was almost thinking more about Iraq than I was thinking about yeah. being in Britain, because it was just such a mental, different thing. Yeah. And then that slowly went away. But you still see people, you know, when I, you know, my second from last job in the army was um, OC Senior Div at Brecon, running between Sergeant's Battle Course. And I was saying before, yeah, I was a generation that had just done ops. You know, they joined as private soldiers yeah. and had just done ops forever. Yeah. Yeah. And there was the odd bloke who still just talked about it all the time. But like really fast and you still yeah, fucking, yeah. mate, you've never let go of it. Yeah. You know, you've not, you've not fully come back yet. Yeah. So there's that which makes it difficult because what would you say to someone who says, so what was it like? Well, mate, where do I start with yeah, that? Yeah. Hot. <laughs> it was hot. Shit. Yeah, but I think the next thing, and this comes back to what you were talking about there, is the thing you miss is, in an odd way, life's simple. Because yeah. all you worry about is the next patrol mm-hmm. and yada yada. And, mm-hmm. and shit like bills and MOT in the car. It's just, there's none of that. And the other side of that as well is, is you, you're in this situation with these blokes where you've kind of made this agreement that everyone would die for everyone else to keep them safe. Yeah. You know, and you, you know everyone would do that. Yeah. And you, so you're in this situation where it, you miss that. You know, it's it's like oh so far, so it's almost like love. Yeah. You know, you've got yeah. this bond. Yeah. Because you're out there every day, absolutely relying on each other to keep alive. And so you've got this bond, and there's nothing else really like it. And you come back, and you miss that. Yeah. But the flip side of that is, as you were saying, you care so much. People can tear themselves up worrying. Did they do enough? Because mm. you care so much about looking after the team and things, you know? But everyone will get that to some extent. Mm. It's, do you get it so much that it's a problem mm-hmm. again, you know? I think another thing is, that I miss, is um, you make decisions that matter. And that's not just in command. Yeah. You know, as a, as a fusilier, as a private soldier, do I go left or right here? If you, mm. you know, you were talking about you being a Valen man. Mm. You know, you've got to make some pretty fucking big calls. Yeah, fucking hell. I, was, oh, I hated it. Hated it. But then you come back and you've got, you know, what colour paint do you want the dining room doing? <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? Uh, and I'm at work now and I enjoy my job now, but I never make decisions yeah. that feel that to matter, me like they matter, matter, that yeah. actually matter, that's yeah. exactly matter. Yeah. You know, and you can miss that. And I think the last thing, and this is the thing that um, I think affected me most about it is, and it's, a, it's an army thing, it's an infantry thing, it's an ops thing, is... Your experience of being in the army, doubly so in the infantry, and doubly so on ops, you, you undergo hardships and stuff that recalibrates your kind of give a fuck on it. Mm-hmm. Then you come back to civilian life and people are whinging about stuff and you think, what fuck off? Yeah. Oh, I'm cold. You're cold, are you? Yeah. Is that like three o'clock stag in the morning in wet clothes, not slept for two days, cold? Yeah. You know, or I'm tired. You, you don't even know what that, are you hallucinating yet? Well, no, well, you're not, you're tired. not tired. And, and I think... And for me, that was the biggest thing, because, you know, I think back to, um, you saw sort of Bosnia and you saw how bad it can be mm-hmm. for the locals there. And then in Iraq, you saw how bad it could be for us and for them. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I remember we got back from Iraq in November and in December we went up to my mum and dad's for Christmas and we took our newborn daughter up as well and took toys and everything and there's a few drinks because that's what the Nicholsons do at Christmas. Mm-hmm. And we hadn't taken a Christmas card from my mum, but we'd taken presents. Right. She had a bit of a go at me about that. And, you know, we'd all had a drink. Mm. And I, I absolutely lost it. Yeah. 
And I think back now and I think, how, how is she meant to know? Yeah. You know, mm. you know, I, a month and a bit before that, I'd been in contact, mm. you know? And and there's something I know she didn't get a Christmas card and it just, you know, I just popped. Yeah. And I think, it, yeah, it takes you a while to leave us out. I did it even recently. Um, someone taught me about, some of our friends talking about, you know, students this year in the first year going, it's horrible for them, isn't it? You know what I mean? Like that. And I, I fucking I think, when I think, Stu, that probably wasn't appropriate. <laughs> you're saying, oh, is that hard for an 18 yeah. year old, is it? Yeah, in a room with Wi Fi and food being delivered to the fucking yeah. door. I saw some 18 year olds having a harder time than that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think, um, for me, that, that's the thing that I find most now. And, I'm, and funny enough, JP, who was my company sergeant major, he's out in the army now, and he does a lot of coaching and stuff, resilience mm-hmm. coaching. He's mm-hmm. good. He's rung around a lot of people and just chatted. Yeah. And he was talking about this ability just to go, they're not meaning to make me feel like that. Yeah. That's me making me feel yeah. like that. Don't do that yourself, Stu. And one of, one of the things I've said before, I think it was in Sony's podcast, is people don't know, but they shouldn't. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. And how, we've, you know, how, how are they meant to know? Yeah. Like in, one of the things is, you know, you joined the army. You you chose to join yeah, the army. Yeah. That you weren't constricted My to join the army. It was your shout. Yeah. Um, you know, I joined the army. I wanted to join. You know, they're not going to know what it's like. They shouldn't know what it's like. Um, but it's hard. Sometimes it's just hard to get your head around it, wrap your head around it. Because if you step yourself step away and you never join the army, you would never know about it. You yeah, know? And, exactly. And, and, and how, how would you? How yeah. would you? You know what I mean? And so I've I've had to myself on that but I think that the damaging side of that as well can be is because we were sort of brought up in the army yeah to man up essentially yeah you know cold wet and that's heavy and I've got a long way to walk mm. oh well you know or I'm scared yeah don't let on because it will scare other people or whatever or whatever and so it's almost like it's manly to bottle it up a bit yeah and sometimes at the immediate moment that's right because no one wants in a contact a look left and see someone crying mm. you don't need that at that mm. time but I think that we can do that to ourselves when we're out yeah and I think that's where a lot of the problems come from is is this people not asking for help mm. until it's too late because they almost don't want to you've got to be don't want to show weakness don't, don't want to show weakness yeah. but it's it's not the same weakness as someone complaining about students on leave this is a proper it's a proper yeah problem you know and I think sometimes we, we we bury the difficult stuff when we people don't need to yeah and that's where people get yeah. I think of all those things that's the most dangerous thing because yeah. you know? they they bottle it up you know they don't they just man up and crack, crack on as normal but it's the stuff that it's trying to learn what stuff not to bottle yeah. up yeah and, and, and also who you can to, say it to yeah you know and um you know, we talked about before, the thing that strikes me is, you know, I always thought that my deal with my company was, we went on ops. I was going to have to ask them to do some honking things, mm. which might well get them hurt. But in return, I would look out for them as best I could. Mm-hmm. And to me, it feels like that would be a bit jack if I said that to them. And then I left the company in 2007, never give a fuck again. Because mm. they they'd signed up with their lives yeah. to that deal. Yeah. And so, and I, I think, you know, I said before, you know, a soldiers for life not just for Christmas yeah. <laughs> you know it's it's a responsibility you've got to and and you know you're talking about I, I think now social media it's full of shite and it's hard work but it means that I've got this big network 
of people and I can see how they're doing mm. and, and they can speak to me if they need to speak to me mm. and I've had one guy approach me and you could already see by things he was posting you're thinking ah he's not and he approached me and I was able to put him in touch with um, poachers um, regiment association mm. who did stuff you know mm-hmm. who did stuff but people need to know that they're okay to ask to ask yeah and I, and I you know we talked before you know what, you know advicey type stuff if people are taking their command responsibility seriously, you've got that forever. Yeah. And if someone's in trouble, if they think back to a commander they've had in their career, who may have been there at the time or whatever, or maybe not, but who they feel like, because, you know, we've got some great leaders in the army. There's some shite as well. We all know that. Mm-hmm. There's some people who, you know, you're pissing in the wind if you run up for help. But think about someone who's had a responsibility for you at some point, who's a, a good egg, who does mm-hmm. it right, and they would give a shit immediately, mm-hmm. you know? And I mean, I, I even spend like, I left a company in 2007. I still find myself writing um, job references for people and stuff, you know yeah. what I mean? But yeah. that's that's the deal, Yeah. you know? Yeah. And we were there for those seven months and that was the most formative seven months of my life and we were there together. Yeah. And it it frightens me that people who were struggling wouldn't feel that they could speak to their, essentially their brothers yeah. from that. Yeah. And that they're, and that, and of course, you know, you you know and I know, if someone who you've been through that with rang you, said, mate, it's not, you would straight away, you were talking about people driving the length of the country to go and yeah. visit someone and stuff, because yeah. they would. Yeah. And people just need to be confident that it's not soft. Yeah. And, to, I, and I feel people, I don't know, like I, my, Egg, Egg, he's one of my best mates in the army, like he's one of my best mates in the army. I've not seen him, we had a Fusilier reunion, I think last year, I've not seen him in, fuck, 11 years. It was. We looked at each other. It was like, like maybe not eleven years, like nine, eight years, or whatever it was since I got out of the army. But like me and him were like best mates, and we, you know, we're still good mates. But it's still the same. It, that's what, that's an incredible thing, same. isn't it? You can meet yeah. someone all that time later, and it's a doddle, yeah. and it's comfortable straight away. Yeah, and like it's like, like nothing's changed. Like yeah. like I even said on Kiwi on Kiwi's episode, it was. Yeah. You know, I'd not seen him in eleven years, and, yeah. but we were talking as if I'd seen him yesterday. Yeah, you know, just filling in the gaps, basically. Yeah. When I feel when people are struggling, they can reach out to yeah, absolutely. Mate. And, and the thing is as well with that is you're reaching out to people who were there. Mm. You know, that, that first time it's like being on a different planet. Yeah, it, they they get it. You know, it's hard to say to a lot of people, but if you say to someone who was there, they they know, yeah. they get it. You know, and uh, and it, and it frightens me when you see. I mean, Facebook's been blazing with this last year or two with suicides yeah and then um, what, what frightens me is and I, I, I'll be honest I didn't know a lot of them particularly well mm-hmm. but I speak to guys I know who knew them and, and yada yada and that you don't see it coming mm. which suggests sometimes you do sometimes you don't that some people are bottling it up till it's well till it's too late yeah. and and yeah, any of us who've been through that with people you would drive the length of the country, wouldn't you? Mm. You know, you would do whatever was required. Mm. You know, and uh, people just need to be comfortable with that. That I'm going to be more upset by one of my soldiers killing himself than ringing me up and saying he's not feeling very good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, I see it from from the the, the normal entry side of you, and you know, I'm seeing seeing people I've served with or you know served alongside and it must be it's just from a 
you know, personally led, it must be different seeing it from your point of view, and you're, you're just like, just reach out to me. And, 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 if, and, if, and it's not happened with any of my company or anything, but if it did, I would feel a responsibility. Yeah. You know, and I, I definitely would, because that, well, that was the deal. You know, <laughs> and, and uh, we were with the episode with Hugh Keir. You know, he he said he said it was. You know, I've, I've always been. I've always said. You know, people just need to reach out. But Hugh said, look, sometimes it's hard. You know, it's it's easy saying just reach out, but when you're in that yeah, low yeah, of lows, yeah, yeah, it's, it's hard to reach out. Yeah, and maybe we just need to make it more of a an acceptable thing from 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 the onset. Well, I tell you what I've noticed recently. I don't know if you've noticed on the sort of army net on social media it's people just checking in with each other a bit yeah. I've, I've had a few people sort of and I've done it with a few people just you know how's it going mate long time yeah. just to give them maybe a window just yeah. to say actually it's a bit shy at the moment yeah. you know I think people just need so I'm I did just just I just did it and I encouraged people to do it rather than the Facebook message I just text I set up like a WhatsApp uh, broadcast list with you know, majority majority of people I know, but just it was more of a personal point of view. I said, "Look, I can just reach out if yeah, you ever yeah. ever in trouble." Because it may not be people don't want to go on Facebook and see it, and then I'm going to reach out. But you know, I encourage people to just reach out to their contacts and their yeah, phone yeah. and yeah. just go, "Look, just just reach out to me." Just Cause, keep it, yeah, because they may go if if they see it on Facebook, they may just you know like oh, another one of those things. But if someone's just messaging, yeah, you, it might that, just it, yeah, it's the know, personal touch. Yeah, absolutely, might, might, yeah. that might just help. And, yeah, but it's um, because we all know. I say, we all know what you would do if someone got in touch with you. Mm. If it was one of your, one of your brothers from that sort of thing. Yeah, and it, you just gotta hope people do, because there's a lot there once people ask for help. Yeah, you know, you've got all the charities that come out here, and I remember this guy got in touch with me, and straight away the Royal Anglian Association was doing stuff. Yeah, you know, but it, it, people just need to access it. And yeah. there all these all these charity things are there for a reason because this is fairly normal for yeah. people to suffer. You know, if, if someone's in shit state, they don't need to think that they're. Yeah, and once you're in the once you're in the once you're in the eye of the charities, you'll be in the eye of loads of different charities, yeah. and you'll you may not get help from one, but you'll get help from another, and it yeah. won't just blend in. And um, like I was, um, Andy Barlow, he he he's, he was talking about Blesbo because that's what yeah. he works yeah. for, but. If you may not be, Blesner might not be able to help people, but he'll just put people on touch through, yeah. through different charities. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's hard, to, it's hard, maybe may hard to reach out, but it's. And the thing is, is always it strikes me as I talked about before, you know, when I joined the army, no one had done very much. Hmm. And then, you know, we, we <laughs> call it like the golden era, but also a pretty bruising era. Yeah. And what always frightens me about this is, is these things can manifest quite a while after, because it could be, you know, that. Other thing, you know, you've only got so much capacity, and it could be 10, 20 years later. Hmm. But then, when your family gets ill, or your wife leaves you, hmm. or you're, and just that thing that just becomes too much, yeah. you know. And and because there was that window where so many people did so much, and we're not clear of it yet. Yeah. You know, you know the effects. Yeah. So just because someone was okay the year after you got back, that doesn't mean, you know, some people. Uh, struggled straight after mm-hmm. and and got better but there's going to be people popping up for kind of ever more for yeah. our generation yeah for, for a while and the way, the way this this is analogy that I I was speaking to someone about so say you got a pint glass 
everyone's glass, maybe not a pint, but everyone's got a glass of shit they can deal with, right? And, and you, you just fill it up and whenever you get, however, whenever your glass is full, that's when you fucking... That's when you go. That's when you go. That's, and your, okay. your glass may be, but, you know, everyone in life, no matter if you've been served in the army or, if you, you know, you're a civvy, whatever, everyone's got a glass where they can take that much amount of shit. But you go on tour... You fill that quite a lot of glass. Fill a lot of glass. You haven't got much left. Exactly. And, yeah. you know, everyone's glass is different, different sizes. But if you get a lot of that glass filled up and then you come home and something that could be, you know, small beforehand would have yeah. been affected. And although although it's not PTSD related and it's not tour related, it does have an effect. You yeah. know, going on tour does have an effect and you fill your glass with shit. And yeah, yeah. Potentially a lot of us have got, yeah, not much space left in it to start yeah. with. No. After all of that. Yeah. And, and, <clears throat> there's a lot of people who've had issues before they even join the army as well yeah. and you know so well, we talked about that before is yeah. the reality is is a lot of people join the army because they've got shit going on shit going on or they've got no one looking out for them or whatever mm. and you know we talked this before earlier and we were um, you know often when people leave the army and have problems often that may not be the product of the army it was before they it had was. a shit life yeah. Man, that's, that's a stupid thing to say they had a difficult life yeah came into the army they were looked out for they weren't alone yada, yada. and then they leave and they're back to where they were before yeah. in the army you know but as you say and in that time if they fill the glass up as well and they've not got the wherewithal to have a very big glass when they get yeah. out you know you kind of got a bit of a recipe for the problems but yeah and it's um, I mean I think it's you know one, th- one thing that worries me as well is that people think that all veterans are nut jobs yeah you know, and I think that that bothers me, and I think um, lots of people manage. It doesn't matter if you don't, but lots of people don't manage who weren't in the army. Mm. You know, yeah. And um, so I think you know, it, it always bothers me. Working outside world now, there's the odd person who seems to think if you if you're hiring a um, a veteran, you're getting be, a, you're getting a bundle of drama. Yeah, and you no more so than anyone else. No. You know. Because uh, yeah, and I, and I think as you get older as well, I think I think when you when you're quite young, you're quite resilient. Yeah. You know, I think back to when I was in Bosnia, my first tour. You know, I literally knout yeah. bounced off me. But um, you get older, you get a bit less resilient, and also you slowly your glasses slowly filling yeah. up with all the shit that's happened to you in your life. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think, like I said, there's potentially a lot of this to come yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think so, and you know we're we're what 2020 the Afghan war really stops what 2014 2013 14 I don't know when stopped but you know we're, we're really at the start of this pan, pandemic or epidemic time of suicide yeah. well you look at um, the Falklands and they reckon now more Falklands veterans have committed suicide than died during the Falklands war and that took a long time to happen that was 82 yeah. you know what I mean so it's and I suppose so, you know so that will sound particularly pessimistic but what it does mean is if everyone gets their ducks in a row a bit more yeah and go stuff like this just making it clear that it's okay to talk about yeah. it you know hammering home the message that people can can speak out you know things like your whatsapp groups are checking in with each mm-hmm. other if people just make that habit then maybe we're better yeah. place to deal with what's kind of yet to come yeah and, and there was this was, was, there was this post I did um, I mean I did the post and I can't remember anyway one of the things I said was we may have been we may have been let down 
by politicians and generals who made the call and they've sent us to war not not provided us with the um, tools to to recover you know mentally and everything after but it's I feel it's up to the the older generation the, the older soldiers to now instead of the people the younger soldiers now or the young younger people in society now instead of brushing it off we need to now guide them and take responsibility and show them look this is the way it's okay to talk about it because you know the older soldier before me like in fact you don't want to talk about shit but I guess it's easy to say but we do need to make it a, an okay thing to do yeah yeah part of the culture part of the culture and it has changed Mike because you know I think back to you know all my previous tours all my previous tours a few I did um, Bosnia you just came home yeah literally nout you know what I mean my when I did my company command there was no decompression or yeah. anything you know we came back from Iraq everyone got smashed back in Turnhill where we were based and then a while later went on leave yeah. you know there was no trim that wasn't a thing there was no training on trim or anything um, so it's it's getting better yeah. you know I mean in fact you know, on the trim thing I just remember we had an incident where one of my platoons just in front of them a Danish vehicle got hit by an IED and it was a fucking mess and this vehicle was on fire and there's a bloke in it who the dashboard of this patrol vehicle thing was mangled and his legs were mangled in it so they couldn't get him out but the vehicle was on fire so every time they opened the door to try and haul him out air got in and the flames went up so they shut the door but then he's trapped in the vehicle and they spent a while at the end of dire comms you know comms was always bad yeah. I was talking them from the ops room and you were just getting little bursts and you are thinking Jesus and they used all of their fire extinguishers and all of their snatch all of their water all of their bottled water and but this guy was wearing a assault vest and the ammunition started cooking off the platoon commander had to say to them, just come out of it, come out of it now. And I had two Lance Jacks who lost their eyebrows, lost their hair at the front, were covered in melted plastic. And then they had to coordinate for hours before someone actually came out to deal with it. And then um, they'd had like, they'd just been going on like a routine. It was an admin run back to Shiber Log Base and this happened to them. And they came back in and I was thinking, fuck, you know what? That sounds to me like about the worst nightmare. Mm. But we were a pretty coherent company and we got in and me and the sergeant major sat down with that platoon and just chatted about it and, and this is before trim was a thing mm -hmm. I think we were just kind of trimming before we yeah, knew trimming yeah, was a thing and just sort of saying you're all right about it you know you did you you did well mm -hmm. you know don't feel and, and just had a chat about it and stuff which and I don't know but I, I've heard nothing from it since mm -hmm. you know what I mean and um but we weren't trained to do that then. We just did it. We did it. But I think so. I think hopefully people are being helped with their resilience a bit more now. Yeah. You know, and also I think maybe as well, as you're saying that the senior guys who are in have now had peers of theirs kill themselves mm -hmm. or have hard times. Mm -hmm. And it's no longer like fucking man up. Yeah. It's it's not a, an away game. It's not a distant thing. It's something that they've seen and been through. So hopefully it's a bit more embedded in the culture now. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think, I think. You know, one of the things I want to talk to you about is what you know, what advice is given. You know, one of your things is about speaking to the regimental age. Well, you know, people forget about that. Yeah, and I think they're coming. At, the regiment and regimental age are coming a lot more accustomed to to dealing with it, but also to showing what what's available for yeah. them. And it's the thing is as well, it's it's accessible. It's an, it's an easy because you know, this guy rang me up, and I spoke to 
a senior servant running an office I still know who's involved in the association mm-hmm. and stuff just happened it's e- it's quick and it's easy and yeah. the Reggie associations as well it's one of those things which will hand you off if you need to go somewhere else but at least you're getting into the world of help mm. you know what I mean and, and I think often people forget about the good old Reggie Association. I mean, people shouldn't forget because you've been paying for it. For yeah, I know. <laughs> you've been paying for it. They've been following you out all your career. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I can use it. Yeah, yeah. And there'll be people in that who know you. Mm. That's, yeah. I think that's a thing. They care. Yeah, they care. yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas, yeah. I guess, a bigger charity, you've... They'll, they'll care, but this is a... This is personal, yeah. or more personal, yeah, because yeah. You're, you're one of your, their own. Yeah. As such. Yeah. Well, Stu, it's been amazing talking to you. Um, oh, I enjoyed well, it. Yeah, love getting it from your point of view, and you know, seeing it from. Do you know what? I've got a question for you yeah, before go we go. On. Well, there's lots of like officers bang on about what they think good and bad leadership is, but the people who know mm-hmm. are the people getting led. Mm-hmm. And what you know, you must have seen decent officers and shite officers. Yeah. And what would you have said as a sort of junior rank bloke? What made a good? What made a good officer? Somebody cared. That, that's the main thing. Yeah. You know, you've got somebody cared and somebody didn't try to dictate. I guess because you, you see, you see a good officer, and I was, you know, one of my old commanders is a badge bloke now. But you know, you, you always saw that he was fucking. He was going to be. He was a good officer. But even my platoon commander on the tour, Mister Danby, he was fucking great. But he just cared. Yeah. And, you know, you you could go on exercise and do whatever and. Fuck, the, the platoon commander is not, you know, what, what, what is it? <laughs> Tony Harris, what do you say? You can, they're like dogs on a leash, you just let them go, the section commander. But, yeah. but in, in, in theory, a section commander does a section attack, that's his bread and butter. You know, platoon commander shouldn't deal, you know, doesn't need to deal with that because that's it. So, but it's also just someone who cares about the blokes, yeah. you know, on, on, a, on a day-to-day basis. And that, that's really... I guess it's different. There's different leaders. You've got the different colours of leaders, and I guess care is what green and yellow and red. Red, you'll get far in life, and you'll make loads of money. But you know, no, you know, no one will like you. You know, and I'm I'm more of the I don't know what colours it is, but I'm more of the side of caring, and that's the way I try to be. You know, I'm, I'm a team leader team now, and yeah. you know, and that's the way I try to be. I'm trying to more care about what my blokes are feeling because at the end of the day if they're feeling shit they're going to be performing shit yeah um so I've, you know i was very lucky with my leadership i had you know mr danby as well and i had um simon valentine who died yeah. but yeah. he was if like if there was anyone that i would epitomize as a good leader it would have been him you know he was he was a platoon sergeant anyway so i was a launch jack so i was always you know he was always my, my hero yeah. yeah but just the way he dealt with people you know he was a platoon sergeant so he fucking been in a while, but he cared about you, cared yeah. about the blokes and what they, how they felt, and he, you know, could also level with them as well. And that's basically what, yeah, I guess that's where I would see it. Somebody cares. I I suspect to some extent as well that the um, this sort of period of of um, of ops mm. forced a bit more people having to do good leadership mm-hmm. because when there was no going on, just exercising in barracks and things. You weren't really asking people to do something that they may not do. Mm. You know, no one was ever scared, yeah. and no one was ever. You know what I mean? Yeah. But then we, um, I think, on ops, you had to. There well, had yeah. to be leadership there. Well, like, I remember we we 
after the patrol with um, where Susu got hit and got killed we had to go on patrol the next day and yeah. we were all threaders but you had uh, Mr. Danby and Val just having getting to people coming. getting people going yeah. and it's like that you know look, looking at it as I've gotten older and fuck I can imagine that position as a as a leader to try and get your blokes to crack on after you're you're all fucking disheartened because hey that was fucking a buzz of the contact and how it, everything transpired but then when you found out that Susie got yeah. here it's like but then trying to get your blokes to go again and yeah that, that's a difficult bit isn't it mm. you, when you don't know you'll do it mm. it's time and time again it gets it, yeah that, that flushes out the leadership that yeah. people still yeah. go I mean but that's also I guess we'll flush out the shit people yeah, as well yeah. yeah you're right yeah yeah blokes yeah. There, was, there was a I won't, won't mention names but there was a there was a platoon commander who was who was in he was in Kabul but yeah he had a different level of respect from the guys it just yeah. wasn't that good yeah. and I'll tell you the thing as well Mark, I did see was within my company there was always this like cometh the hour cometh the man when the wheels were coming off people just popped up and you know I would have Lance Jacks just at that moment just rise to the occasion mm. and the blokes around them just picked it up from them yeah. you know what I mean it, it just, just people it's not a it's not an officer sport you yeah. know it's for it's for everybody and even a a private soldier yeah. at that time can be the bloke who gets, get, gets it yeah. gets it working yeah. you know what I mean and if you've got some of that around the place then you can do brilliant things I mean and, and, and you know the golden era of soldiers is like that if you imagine like Imagine five years ago, if you'd have looked at the army, that would have had so, s- the most operational experience oh, army probably in the world. Absolutely yeah, I know. Al- almost too much. Yeah, fucking so many MCs <laughs> and yeah, well, I t- t- flying t- around. I told you, you know, my, my second last job when I was OC senior div at Brecon, and it was the, it was the very generation. Yeah. And like every platoon had someone decorate for something. We had, in um, oh, we had a guy with, a girl that comes I, don't, I can't remember what called it's a Queen's Gallery or something yeah. one below a Victoria Cross and stuff you oh, know you had yeah. all these people coming through you had people with holes in them you had people who all done six tours yeah. you know they were and all my DS all my colour sergeants you know slack handful of MCs just about everyone had an MID they'd all done everything sl- yeah. sl- <laughs> yeah. mental yeah. and I come back to my company commander when I was at Sandhurst all he had was an MBE that's crazy you know yeah it's changed yeah yeah yeah. All right. Well, wicked. Thanks for coming on. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. And there it was. Uh, thanks for Stu coming on and sharing his experiences and stories. Hopefully, I'll get another one of these episodes done before the end of the year. Um, but you know, who knows with what's going on? I'm pretty sure we're going in tier three as of tomorrow. So, also just just a heads up, I'm actually gone on the h-hour podcast with hugh kia uh, we recorded that yesterday and it should go live this weekend um yeah go give that a listen as well um and and, uh, and as always you know reach out to me on instagram or facebook at the real podcast and uh, if you need to, want to get in touch via email it's the real podcast at gmail.com and until next time lay low move fast and stay safe and i'll see you then